Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psycho Analysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. So we are continuing our talk about toxic and abusive relationships. And I think we're going to kind of trend a little more towards the abusive side probably in this episode um, because we are talking about 2020's The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Mott. We sure are. And this was this was a movie that I think a lot of people saw on streaming services because it was supposed to have a wide theatrical release right at the, you know, beginning of maybe mid-March. And that's when all the shit hit the fan and we all had to go inside forever. So I know I watched it on video on demand from the studio who released it for like 20 bucks you know, so that, that's how I saw it. Yeah, this was the last one that I watched in theaters. Um, oh, really? And yeah, I because I was going to write something for a consequence of sound about it. And so I went um, in the, the middle of the day at like the first day that I was working at home because we I was working at home for a couple of weeks before we all had to work from home. And so this was uh, when I was supposed to be working. But I worked that night to make up for the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I Well, I'm not going to say whether or not I do that. I'm just not oh, going to no, say it. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, when did you see this? So, uh, like Laura, like I saw this probably like a week or so into the shelter in place order. I think it came mm. out on my birthday. It came out like end of February. Oh, and wow. it did really well. Like it made crazy money, which is mm-hmm. great because I love Leigh Wannell. And not just because his movies are great, but he's just an all-around A-plus human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really... Everything that he does, I've enjoyed so far, uh, especially things like Hooties and Upgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, I did so love I... Upgrade. The yeah. action sequences so and Upgrade are to die for. <laughs> so oh, more good. people should see Upgrade, guys. It's and so I mean, fun. I love Saw. Like, I'm a bit, I don't love torture porn, but I really like Saw a lot. I, fun, fun story. Like, I remember Leigh Wannell and James Wan, when Saw 2 was about to be released, they appeared at a Fangoria convention that my friends and I drove down for, and they were on stage, and they're like, we really have nothing to do with Saw 2. Like, we have no, <laughs> we don't have any, didn't have any ideas for a sequel. Like, mm. we had no money to even make Saw. And they said, we'll give you money to be executive producers. And we said, that'll be great. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, like, these two jamokes are going to go nowhere. Why would you ever? And look, you know, look so definitely now. come to me if you need um, future predictions on stuff. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh. I saw The Invisible Man like on my sofa. It's that new model where you can get, you know, a brand new release for like 20 to 25 bucks. And it yeah, did pretty that's... well when it got released on VOD, right? Mm-hmm. It did. I mean, this movie made like $130 million in theaters across the world at the start of a pandemic. So it was a smash. And then Mm -hmm. 
more people were able to see it, obviously, once it did that VOD. Um, and it also did a really... I don't think it did, like, Trolls money, where, like, they said <laughs> Trolls was more profitable after, like, two weeks on VOD than it was the whole time they did. Trolls is a different kind of... Like, seeing a Trolls movie whole different kind of trauma so many people just wanted something to do with their kids yeah though. they were like oh my right. god put them in front of a screen yeah which i get i mean i'm quarantining with two children so yeah. i understand um well okay so we're going to talk about the movie synopsis we are going to spoil this movie so just broad spoiler alert um and we're going to keep doing it the way we do it because i kind of like our our system right now we've got an official synopsis and then we have written our own version that kind of i think um tempers it a little bit of how we feel about the movie um so laura would you like to read the official universal synopsis for this movie Emmy winner Elizabeth Moss stars in a terrifying modern tale of obsession inspired by Universal's classic monster character. Trapped in a violent, controlling relationship with a wealthy and brilliant scientist, Cecilia Cass escapes in the dead of night and disappears into hiding, aided by her sister, their childhood friend, and his teenage daughter. But when Cecilia's abusive ex commits suicide and leaves her a generous portion of his vast fortune, Cecilia suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of eerie coincidences turns lethal, threatening the lives of those she loves, Cecilia's sanity begins to unravel as she desperately tries to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty um, broad. That's, that's fair. Yeah, it, yeah, fair. It gets the job done. It does, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, my version um, Cecilia Cass leaves her abusive boyfriend, Adrian, a wealthy Elon Musk esque. I like that word. Optics expert. Thank you, Laura. Um, in the dead of night, she is assisted by her sister, Emily, and given shelter by their childhood friend, James, and his teenage daughter, Sydney. As a result of her boyfriend's abuse, Cecilia suffers from PTSD that is somewhat relieved when she learns that Adrian has committed suicide. However, she is soon tormented by an unseen force causing her to believe Adrian is not really dead and has found a way to make himself invisible. And it turns out he has, thanks to a high-tech, top-secret invisibility suit that he invented. Adrian attempts to separate Cecilia from her support system by assaulting Sydney and framing Cecilia for Emily's murder, resulting in her committal to a mental health facility where she learns she is pregnant. After Adrian is revealed to have faked his death, framing his brother for his crimes, Cecilia confronts him and uses his one invisibility suit against him. I'm sorry, uses his own invisibility suit against him, murdering him and staging it as a suicide. She walks out of his house a final time, breathing deeply after having won her freedom. Ah, so that's, I mean, you could probably tell a little bit about how I feel about this movie. So the next thing we're going to do is talk about, um, kind of do a feelings check-in. How did we feel when we watched this movie? And uh, Laura and I, I think, kind of have disagree. We're going to disagree a little bit about this movie because, Laura, I know you do not like this movie very much. Yeah, it's not my favorite. I was definitely disappointed by the overall trajectory of it. Um, I do think the first half of the film is very good, and that's really th like largely thanks to Elizabeth Moss, mm -hmm. you know, being being awesome. And there's a really excellent opening sequence that I genuinely think is really great. Um, and for the most part, I believe her terror and her desperation to escape that rang true with me. I've never myself 
been in this level of a toxic relationship, not quite as dramatic as, as we see on screen here, but I have had some bad experiences, including what I like to call being lightly stalked. <laughs> um, and so overall, the film does a good job of capturing like that fear and paranoia that comes with the territory of what she's going through. Um, but there were a lot of elements that I found distracting and that kept you know, basically things that didn't really have anything to do with the the core premise of the film. So I don't want to harp on them too much because I don't, you know, I don't think it's super relevant to our conversation about toxic relationships, but they're just like film things that, that bugged me. And that really kept me from emotionally investing to the level I would have really liked to and kept me from feeling really gratified by what was otherwise had the potential to be a really, really good story. Um, also a very clever spin on the original Invisible Man story, which was about this gene, you know, it was focused on the the, the mad genius inventor uh, and his descent into evil and versus, you know, the camera shifted to the side and was like, what's he doing to the loved ones in his life? I think that's a brilliant idea for a premise. Uh, so I think that my high hopes for it were disappointed and that's where a lot of my issues with it are coming from. But, I, you know, I don't hate it and I, and I think it, mostly strikes the right chords with the actual relationship elements um it's more Mm -hmm. in the structure of the story and the other characters and that's where I start to have issues but yeah yeah and I will say like because I read a little bit of the specific things you were talking about and I agree mostly with him I think I just didn't quite notice them so they didn't distract me um but I mean as I was writing the um the synopsis I had to look up James and Sydney's names so I think that speaks to the development of those characters you know and that that it could have been um probably done a little bit better and I also want to I just want to say to everyone out there like it's totally fine for us to disagree about this movie and that does not neither one of us are right or wrong it's just we have we come to it from different experiences um exactly and so and that's totally fine I mean we're not gonna have like a cage match episode where we like do get out and like one is victorious or anything we're just talking about how we feel about it um but well that's disappointing (laughs) I know I know. Now that now that you said the t- the two magic words cage match, I know. I mean, now that is two episodes in a row that we've talked about um, wrestling. I think. Uh, well, Mike, how do you feel about this movie? I agree with. I, I actually agree with what a lot of what Laura just said. I think this is like a tale of two movies. That first half is brilliant. The opening sequence with Elizabeth Moss's character Cecilia escaping. Like Moss is just so good at selling this absolute fear that if she doesn't get out at this time she's done for like this is not a situation where there's going to be a second opportunity for her to leave it's either she gets out or she gets killed and i think that first half of that movie where it sells the trauma that she goes through after she leaves how she can't live in the present she's either processing what just happened to her or she is planning ahead for when she's actually discovered, but she's never able to live in the mm-hmm. present moment. I think that is all brilliantly done. And the movie shifts for me during the um, sequences after she's incarcerated, mm-hmm. because then it goes from this really, and Laura, I think you hit it right on the head, like shifting the perspective on this mm-hmm. movie. Cause I think the one that's most analogous to is like 2000s, Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. Mm. Very much a similar kind of movie about like a toxic relationship and unchecked toxic masculinity. Um, 
and this feeling that people belong to you somehow and this sense of entitlement that sometimes men especially get in a relationship. I think all of that is present in Hollow Man. Um, however, I think shifting the perspective here onto Cecilia makes it a much richer movie and something that's much riper for exploration. Yes. All of that goes out the window at about the hour and 15 minute mark when the last 45 minutes really become an action movie. It becomes more like, all right, John Woo, why don't you step in and and, and do mm. the rest of this to me? And it's not that it's poorly done. Like there are some tremendous sequences in there. Like that hallway sequence is great um, from like a just like mm. fun action movie perspective, but it kind of wipes away everything. Although I do think that the resolute, we talked last week about whether or not the ending of Midsommar was earned and whether Christian got the fate he deserved within the context of genre films. And yes. I would, you're right. I would say like in Invisible Man, we that discussion is not there as much because I think anybody watching this would come away from it feeling that, yes, Adrian got what he deserved. Yeah. Yeah, he is a truly evil character with no nuance. You know, he is just, he is just, I mean, I think that the portrayal of the details of the relationship are really is, is good. And, and I think, you know, very important to have a conversation about. But just like looking at his character on the page, he doesn't have any any notes. He really is truly just like an evil menace mm -hmm. that has got to he's got to he's got to go. Yeah. And <laughs> got to kill well, this guy. I know we, we discussed off air like there is in terms of like the lack of nuance, there's one decision that. Wano made that I think if he changed that decision would make it a little bit more nuanced overall and I think we'll get into that a bit more as we get into kind of the body of the film so I'm really looking forward to bringing that mm -hmm. up because I think very early on he's exposed as a villain and I think you could have changed that a little bit and left it a little bit more open-ended just because in our own lives like I think all of us know people in our lives that have abused somebody and we don't know about it because yep. they have a way of presenting themselves to others that, and when you hear like someone say, you know, oh, how can you be friends with this person? Didn't you know that? And then X, you're like, what? Sometimes yeah. you have this visceral, like, no, no, you have to be mistaken or it's just a misunderstanding. Or maybe you thought that, um, you know, because like, that's not our experience with these individuals. Um, and I think like you could have almost seen that here, but for one choice the movie made. Overall, I like it. I think that at the end of the year, this is going to earn a lot of best of, um, and it's going to be at the top of a lot of people's list for like the best horror of 2020, and I think deservedly so. I think that that change in tone midway through the movie hurts it a bit for me. Um, and I got to admit, I didn't rewatch this again until last night at 11 o'clock at night saying I need to rewatch this. I had already done all my notes for the show, but I'm like, I should rewatch this again. Um, I was just putting it off and I can't quite put my finger on why. So that'd be fun to maybe explore that a bit as we record today. Well, so I, I love, love this movie. It is going to, right now it's at the top of my list for 2020, um, and a big part of that is because um, also why maybe I was a little goofier off at the beginning is I'm pretty nervous to talk about this movie because my first marriage was abusive. And so as I watched this movie, there was so much that I related to. Um, and I was completely 
um, connected with Elizabeth Moss. So like what we were talking about, a lot of the characterizations of the side characters, I didn't really notice because I was so like with Elizabeth Moss and that was what I was really focused on. Um, and I do think the first half, like I've got so much to say about how the first half represents a lot of feelings I've had. Um, and a lot of experiences that I've had um, just dealing with it. I love that the focus is on Elizabeth Moss in this movie because I feel like that allows us, kind of like what you were saying, Mike, like when you know somebody and you find out they have been abusive, you know their charismatic personality. And it's so easy to say, no, this person would never do that. or to, And then to look at the woman who's accusing him or the person who's accusing the abuser, because I don't want to gender. It, like Lots of women are abusive and lots of men are abusive as well. Um, it's not totally a man versus woman thing. Um, but I think it's so easy to look at the person who's being accused and find sympathy there and I love that we don't really see Christian until the very end except for that one scene in the beginning and so we have to identify with Elizabeth Moss because we don't have any other options and so we are able to really focus on how this experience makes her feel um, and I was watching this and I was like, oh, my God, somebody finally sees me and somebody is like somebody understands what this kind of thing can do. Um, and I do agree that there is a tonal shift in the movie. And I think for me, I loved it because then it almost kind of turned into a revenge fantasy for me, you know, and I was like, yeah, they and there's also that element of like they finally believe me like they finally see it, too. I'm not crazy like this is not. Um, I, I'm not the only person that's seeing this stuff. It's real, and she's taken seriously to some extent. So, like, I was on board all the way through. Um, but I can see what you guys are talking about. And I do not, like, when I look at it through kind of a more critical lens rather than an emotional lens, I see that. And I see, I kept thinking, like, how did they arrange for her to stay? Like a lot of the plot elements I was curious about in a way that I hadn't noticed before because I was just so emotionally invested. Um, but yeah, so that's my, that's my kind of experience with the movie and I, I've got a lot to say about it. Um, but let's talk about why we chose it for this episode because we've been talking about toxic and abusive relationships. I feel like last time we talked a lot about uh, when our in our midsummer episode. We talked a lot about um, toxic relationships and like emotional abuse because there really is no physical abuse in midsummer, and all and there is some here. Although it's interesting that we see a lot of the after effects of this relationship. Like we start with her leaving. Um, yes. So you know, a lot of it is off screen and implied, and you have to be with her and believe her experience in order to. To, to to appreciate the like physical abuse but I, I think that was actually a good choice on the part of the filmmaker because you know I don't want to watch a movie where you just see a woman get knocked around a bunch like we've seen that story mm -hmm. uh, in so many TV TV shows and movies like yeah I think their their choice to start it with the moment she was leaving and seeing just how afraid she was told you everything you needed to know I think and so that's too. a really important takeaway uh, and I will give the movie credit for that yeah so I agree so yeah I think that is why we chose it I think you know we were we we wanted to show the spectrum and I think we're going to try to do that generally speaking with the choices of films that we we choose to represent the different 
topics that we're, we're about. We want to show the full spectrum of experience to the best of our ability and to the best of, you know, the uh, films that we have seen and think of. I think that these are two that really show the, the you know, two ends of the spectrum, how, how insidious and sort of quiet uh, toxicity can be in a relationship on the midsummer end, and then how brazen and violent and life destroying it can be on the end of the invisible man end of the spectrum. Yeah. And one thing that I really love about this movie is I feel like it presents a really good, not answer, but um, discussion of why people don't leave and how hard it can be to leave that kind of um, relationship, Um, which is something that I don't feel like we talk about nearly enough. And a lot of people don't kind of understand the nuances of that kind Mm. of choice. Yes, exactly. I think a lot of movies, like, they'll show, like, you know, the leaving is the where movies end. Like, right. finally, they g- gather the strength to leave, yep. and they don't go through the, like, many layers of bureaucracy and bullshit that you have to put up with as someone leaving in an abusive relationship, and, like, how, you know, it can financially destroy you. It can, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, you can lose your home and your support system, and, um, yeah. yeah. So I think it does. I think it does get into some of that nuance. And I think that's where it is really where the movie is really strong is in exploring that kind of stuff, because you don't you don't see that nearly enough. Right. In these kind of stories. Yeah, because it's not that's not the end of the story. You know, I mean, my that relationship ended like almost 10 years ago, and I'm still like dealing with a lot of the effects of of it, which we'll talk about through the episode. Um But so, okay, so we're talking, last time I feel like we talked a lot about um, what um, kind of a toxic relationship is. We talked a lot about codependency. Um, And so, Mike, what is the mental health issue that we're talking about here? Because we also talked about how this is not necessarily a definable, diagnosable thing. Yeah, what you're looking at here is intimate partner Mm -hmm. violence. We talked a bit about the different kinds of, like the DSM basically has like near the back of it, this little section that is like relational <laughs> problems. And it's very, um, not vague because it, there's a number of categories that it covers, but it's different from say, saying, oh, you're a person that has depression mm-hmm. overall. So it's a little bit different. And in the case of The Invisible Man, we're looking more at intimate partner violence where you're getting into physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, um, controlling the economics of a Mm -hmm. person or economic abuse. Um, and basically completely isolating a person. I think that it was very telling that the only person Cecilia could turn to was her sister Mm -hmm. to have her help her out. And even then, like once she left, there was nobody else in her life. Like she had been basically cut off from all of the other relationships in her life at that Mm -hmm. point. Um, So she was staying with a stranger for lack of like, I think James is a stranger to her from kind of how I read it. You know, I think he was friends. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The synopsis said childhood friend, but I didn't pick up any of that. I assumed that she, the sister mm -hmm. was like a DA and this was a a police officer that she worked with or something, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really flesh that out. No. That that was one of the things I struggled with was like not the way that they didn't really define that relationship or those two characters, mm-hmm. and I found mm-hmm. it just I found that was one of, I just got super distracted by that. But yeah, right. I don't want to. Just, so go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, no. So I took this from 
the Journal of Loss and Trauma. This is an article by Tricia Orzik, uh, Amy Rocock, and Jacqueline Chin, uh, The Effects of Traumatic and Abusive Relationships. Um, basically, the what this leads to, what abuse leads to, it's linked to higher rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and dissociative disorders. So a dissociative disorder is basically when it feels like the events that are happening to you don't feel like they're happening to you. If someone says, like, I feel like I'm out of my skin, that type of deal, um, where you no longer are kind of aware of what's going on to you or around mm -hmm. you. So partner abuse is linked, and you are much more likely to be comorbid with depression and anxiety and PTSD in particular. Mm -hmm. That's um, where my diagnosis Abuse women... Yeah. Well, no, I was I'm gonna sorry. say that's where my PTSD diagnosis comes from. Yeah. No. Which would make yeah. sense. I mean, we can we're gonna in the future we're gonna go much deeper into PTSD mm -hmm. and we'll talk about the different types and um Sorry, I didn't mean to distract abuse, you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Totally that's all right. Um I'm like a marathon runner <laughs> here, like I'm focused, you know, we're uh, yeah. we're good. Um abuse women in particular show higher rates of self harm. Um higher rates of expressing suicidal ideation and also attempting suicide. Um, emotional abuse is basically linked to higher rates of eating disorders and other self-destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. um, All of which makes sense to we, me because like when no. you're experiencing abuse like that, your, your self-esteem and your very sense of self is being eroded regularly by someone mm -hmm. that you place intimate trust in mm -hmm. and so it's like it's like you couldn't make a more toxic concoction for someone to completely learn to distrust and and hate themselves you know yeah. and so it's, it's mm -hmm. just such a terrible thing that we do to each other um it so is. yep yeah yep yeah as yeah. you were talking about the self-harm like i hold a little um um thumbtack and it's not a self-harming thing but it started as that and i've kind of weaned myself down mm -hmm. and through therapy but i mean that is definitely something that has um has been an issue for me and a lot of it is because like you blame yourself and you think if i yeah. just were better or i am never going to get out of this because i'm not good enough to figure out how to not feel bad you mm -hmm. know so that's just something that i've definitely that i've definitely mm -hmm. dealt with um yeah yep yeah, and the kind of psychological abuse that Cecilia suffers in this movie, and you see it in small doses at the end of the movie when she finally confronts Adrian one-on-one. -on -one. You can see it when he offers this, what he feels is a sincere apology, and when he's not immediately forgiven mm -hmm. and getting back to normal, you can see him almost throw a tantrum. Mm -hmm at that point and he starts to dig in like no one will know you like i do nobody will understand you like you need me mm -hmm. um that kind of psychological abuse tends to be longer lasting and embeds itself much deeper in the psyche um you are looking at 
hidden messages that the abused person starts to believe about themselves. So what's different from just plain verbal abuse versus like emotional or psychological abuse is not only is the abuser insulting the person, but they're kind of imparting these like deeper hidden messages that is meant to really attack their target sense of self-worth and things that are unspoken about them overall. Mm. Um, do we want to talk about the different kinds of reactions that persons have to this kind of abuse, or do we want to leave that for a little I bit? I think we can talk about that. Yeah, All I'm right. interested. So, yeah, me too. So this article and like some of the reading it did, we, we talked about the stressful reactions that people undergo. Um, there are significantly stressful, significantly stressful reactions, things like you can't sleep or it's disturbed all the time. You start to self-harm yourself and you feel like your life is spiraled out of control. So a person that's suffering from significant abuse and experiencing a very stressful reaction might say things like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. I want to stab myself. I don't control how I act or think any longer. Or they might do extreme things, like if their partner threatens to leave them, they might say, if you leave me, I'm going to cut myself. Mm. Uh, because they just don't have any sense of their own worth at that yes. point. Um, they'll Others, things that will ha you'll see is they'll have extremely negative affect. So they are always expressing feelings of sorrow. They tend to be much more pessimistic. They tend to come off as much angry. And also they're hopeless. They'll say like, I feel confused at a lot. I feel like I'm lost. I'm scared of everything. Um, from that article, one of the person surveyed said, I cried every day until I actually left. Mm. Um, those feelings of self-worth, you see people with poor self-esteem. They tend to be much more self-deprecating. Um, <laughs> they tend to feel like they're not enough. They'll say, like, I feel ugly. I'm not good enough. I lack self-confidence. Everybody <laughs> hates me. Um, I know. Jen, Jen yes. and I are both laughing because these are both things that we do to ourselves constantly. Uh, yeah. And we've um, both... Like, watching the video. I know. Here, we're just like, I know, should, man. Should I continue? You're like, like you've, said enough, in, like, we... you've right. said enough, Mike. You've said enough. Yeah. And I mean, it's just... Um, it's It's... it's do you guys want to talk about puppies instead? <laughs> uh, I don't think that's why people are listening to this podcast. But that's no, and I, true. It just is. It's like, and I think it's. I think it's okay for us to be feeling this way, and it's okay for us to have wow. a reaction to it because, you know, yeah. like the movies like this, like they really are digging into the, the 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 some of the darkest shit because, like, you know, I, I wasn't like I said. I've I've been in a, a, a an emotionally toxic relationship that was a lot closer to mid the midsummer end of the spectrum, but I still felt all the things that you're saying now in terms of like things mm -hmm. that have come out of my mouth and, and things that I've said and felt about myself. Like, so it just, I just don't want to understate how much this can impact someone and how, and for how right. long it can impact them and that that's okay mm -hmm. because like you are dealing with, with something that so fundamentally undermines your sense of self that mm -hmm. of course you feel all these things and of course you're having these reactions and that's not you, that's not your fault. Like someone, whether they meant to or not, whether it's as dramatic as we saw in this movie or as subtle as we saw in Midsummer, like someone did this and, and, and you danced this dance with them and it, it's okay that you're struggling, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's my little 
um, a freak out <laughs> moment for the day. Oh. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I'll no, and I I was going to say, like, there is no definition of an abusive relationship. Like, for a long time, I had this idea that if I never got punched in the face or I never had to go to the hospital, it couldn't be abusive. It's so, And that was what I that was the bar I held. And it allowed me to just excuse everything else. And so I think like there's no line in the sand. It's these are this person that I'm in a relationship with is causing me to feel these ways based on their actions. Um, and it doesn't even matter what the motivation for those actions are. What matters is how you feel and how it is negatively affecting you. And so like if there was not actually physical violence in the relationship, you could still be feeling the exact same way as someone else who was in a more violent situation. Um, Right. And the, I was just flashing back to the last month of my marriage because I just was like laying on the couch because I was so depressed and I was like, I'm never getting out of this. I don't know. Like it, there's, this is hopeless. I'm just stuck here forever. And I mean, I did not actually leave that relationship. He left me. Same um, we with had, my, <laughs> really? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's, and it makes me so angry when I think about it because me like, too. I, sh- I should have left. I had every reason in the world to leave and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and you know, so it's like, God damn yeah. it. See, I think that's probably why we like occasionally a visceral ending where Kate Moss, you know, or Kate, I keep calling her Kate Moss. Oh, God. <laughs> Elizabeth Moss can suddenly pick up a gun and become a like ninja assassin, you know. Right. I get it. I get it. You know, yeah. so it's because like it, it leaves you feeling so weak and yeah. so worthless, you know. So uh, yeah. yeah. I, I had this conversation with a person last week and they were telling me some things that had happened and how, why they're feeling like they do. I'm like, well, yeah, you've experienced this trauma. And they stopped me and they're like, well, I don't think what I experienced was trauma. And we kind of started to talk more and more about it. And it was because they didn't want to feel like they were a victim. Mm -hmm. They felt Mm -hmm. like if you experience trauma, then you immediately become a victim. And, you know, like, I don't feel like that. I feel like worse things have happened to other people. And Mm -hmm. the conversation continued um, about how, like, look, we experience in, in different ways overall. Um, and just because like you may not feel that you have experienced trauma, you know, like in your head, like your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, like how you're kind of presenting yourself to the um, outside world, you're, you are experiencing it. it. Like it's affecting your functioning in these ways, like right. A, B and C. You know, so and that's okay. And the conversation I had was like, we often feel like if we're the if we've experienced these horrible things that they are intrinsically linked to who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's a part Mm -hmm. of who we are. Like, you know, oh, like I'm a I am a trauma victim. It's like or I have trauma, just like you would say, like, I have brown eyes or I have a beard or I have like four toes, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's not the case. Like the problem is the pro what I said to this person was like the problem is the problem Mm -hmm. like you are not the problem like this is not a part of who you are as a person like it is a problem to be dealt with um and if we can look at it from that way and examine it from that way we have the opportunity to like take a different perspective on it instead of saying look at how this has impacted my wife life in a negative way let's look at all the ways that we found that we grew from it or how it didn't defeat us, how it didn't, at the end of the day, it didn't wear us down and we were able to kind of escape from it. And they ended up like during the week, um, texted me this 
thing they found, like how we think people experience trauma versus like how we see people experience it versus like the ways we don't see people mm. experience it. And they were like, you know, I thought of this after we talked and it was like, I hadn't really thought of all these ways that it's affecting me that like people don't comment on in like an outward mm-hmm. way. Yeah. It is, it's hard to talk about. Um, yeah. And I will say for a long time, I had a really hard time calling myself a survivor because then like what you were saying, I would have had to admit that I was a victim and I just, I didn't want to admit to myself that this stuff had actually happened for a lot of reasons. Um, and so it took a long time for me to kind of embrace that word. And I did have to identify myself as a victim before I could start identifying myself as a survivor. And that's what I say now. I say I've, I, I'm a survivor of these things and I'm, I've been through it because I do feel like I'm, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I have come a long way from where I was. And a lot of that was just admitting that a lot of these things happened, you know, which is a big step. Huge step. Huge step. You can, I mean, it, I think we get so wrapped, we, you know, understandably get wrapped up in language and the way that, and how we expect things to sound or look like you were just saying about that thing, Mike, mm-hmm. like, you know, we, we have ideas from, whether it's from media, from, you know, how how we're taught things and how we're modeled from our families, you know, but like we think of everything in these binaries, you know, like I mm-hmm. am traumatized, you know, versus I am someone who lives with trauma or I'm a person with trauma. Like, it's just like, you know, like the little yeah. bits of things that we collect and these life experiences, like they, they like Mike just said, they don't have to define you. Um, and I think that because of that binary mindset that is so common in our culture, like, it keeps healing from being able to occur. I, I, you know, and I know we're not talking about this movie yet. I know at some point we'll get to it, but we've talked about covering Halloween H2O and Halloween 2018 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how they, the difference in the way that it depicts PTSD and trauma and how I've had people argue for either case <laughs> or either movie. And to me, it's not like this either or dichotomy. Yeah. It's, this expectation, like I think, think like how could uh, Laurie Strode, if she was really suffering from PTSD, you know, become like the headmistress of this prestigious academy mm-hmm. and have this like together? It's like no, it's like that's really underselling victims of yeah. this overall to say that like well they can't go on to be very successful in certain aspects of their life. Yeah, like they experience that and they process it differently but there are obviously other areas in their life where they maybe don't function quite as well whether that's in interpersonal relationships or they may have like dysfunctional coping mechanisms whether it's like substance use or alcohol use or even if it's just like suppressing their voice because they're afraid if they speak up in a situation they're going to be Mm re-victimized again yeah yeah and i'll say like I went, I left, that relationship ended, or that marriage ended, and I went pretty quickly into some other relationships, and I was remarried within probably a year and a half, and just kind of was living my life and was doing things, and I mean, I was not, like what you were saying, there was a lot of negative habits that I don't think I really realized were happening, and I had turned off a lot of, like, emotional responses to things, 
And it wasn't really until 2016 where a big thing happened that I don't know if we need to really get into, but <laughs> what that, what could it be? <laughs> what could it be? Yeah, but that's when that's what really triggered this. Oh, I need to deal with this, and that because it, it brought up so many of these things that had just been like buried so deeply under the surface. And so I think like when you're talking about like you can function for a long time while still dealing with the results of these things. And it's not necessarily on the surface. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail you (laughs) as we were talking about like the different kinds of responses to, to these abusive relationships. No, we kind of, I was going to say the last thing I had there was like, there are in this study that was done, there were like a small amount of participants about 5% they reported feeling empowered after coming out of the other end of the abusive relationship. That's nice. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it is. In particular, one day, man. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was specific to because there were different in this study. There were different types of abuse that were reported, ranging from like the physical, verbal, emotional, but there was also um, infidelity was listed mm. as one of the types of abuse overall. Um, sexual abuse was listed and then also financial abuse, Mm. basically exploiting, basically taking over their finances so that they made completely dependent on. But the persons from this study, and I say persons because it was both men and women that were studied in there and it wasn't quite a 50, 50 split. Mm -hmm. It was probably about 60, 40 or 66, 33 or so. Mm. Um, I'm glad you clarified that because I felt a little clunky about how I said that earlier. No, I think no, I think sorry. there are statistical um, breakdowns, but you know they're limited by uh, a lot of factors when it comes to something like this because people don't always right. report, you know, yeah. being abused, yeah. and so there's the, I, it just it's complicated, you know. Yeah, I I think we can safely say that both men and women are abused, and also trans mm-hmm. persons in particular getting, are definitely. Yeah. A much higher prevalence of suffering different kinds of abuse. I think we can say that this is an issue that does cross across yes. all gender lines, mm-hmm. but it does happen more to women yeah. than it does to men. Mm-hmm. And that's not to that's not in any way to downplay the abuse that men do suffer. Yeah. Um, but I think we can say that like this issue does tend to happen statistically more to women and it's underreported like Lara just mm-hmm. said it is mm-hmm. underreported yeah um, it's difficult to get exact numbers because it often goes underreported yeah. um, in particular the, the persons that said they were feeling empowered um, mostly reported the kind of abuse they suffered were of a sexual or uh, sexual abuse nature mm. and then once they were able to escape the relationship they felt empowered and like because they were able to do so that's interesting and I think you could argue that, and you know, to bring it back to the movie and this character and what she experiences, that pretty much every type of abuse you just listed, <laughs> she is experiencing at the hands of of, of Adrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because mm-hmm. you get into the, uh, you know, it's not explicitly stated that she's sexually abused by him, but he does uh, abuse her reproductive rights by screwing with her birth mm-hmm. control, and then so you know, and and mm-hmm. it's like the Absolutely. ultimate you know, move to control her, the sort of the, the coup de grace, you know, that he pulls is revealing to her that she's pregnant and that actually, you you know, have to come back to me because then I can, we can forget all of this, even though I'm in, invisible right. in a hospital and just murdered like a bunch of people or whatever, like, you know, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. 
I was like, how's that going right. to work? <laughs> I mean, I'm down with it. But, right. You know. Like, I know I like um, slit your sister's throat and just like murdered a bunch of cops or whatever. But like, you know, but right. but the point the point I'm making <laughs> that I'm getting distracted from <laughs> by my own <laughs> personal ADD brain uh, <laughs> is that like he he's really pulling this as the ultimate gambit on her by getting not basically like knocking her up without her consent, you know, and that is I, yeah. I, I don't know if that would classically qualifies sexual abuse but i'm just gonna throw it in that category <laughs> like you know i think it yeah. does well and also does. she does not like we don't ever hear her say what happened which is we don't need to and like what she says when they ask what he did um is he james says did he hit you and she says amongst other things which is a way like, my line was always, oh, it'll be a Lifetime movie someday, which is, like, a deflection of, like, how to keep from having to list all the horrible things that happened. And because there are things, like, I still have not admitted to myself. There are things I don't know if I will ever want to talk about. And I don't want to say it to, like, a casual stranger. So I yes. think, like, her, um, her, like amongst other things that's her way of saying it was bad and I mean to their credit they don't really pry into that which I think is good because they're that's those are really really hard things to talk about and yeah and um, you don't it's enough to say that this yeah, hurt me and, and just because and I think this is an important point to make in general like I'm a really big advocate for therapy and for people telling their stories and stuff but like it should be within your control when and yes. to whom you share this kind of information because it is very intimate and not and you know if you're not in the mood <laughs> you know like it, <laughs> right, you right. Know, mm. there's all sorts of reasons and all of them are valid for when and to whom you you share that kind of that yeah. part of your and I will say along those lines, like, cause I just said, there are things I don't know if I ever want to talk about, but then there's part of my brain that says, but you know, it helps when you do, because every time I say it, it does help me and it makes it a little easier. And when I hear other people say things they've been through, it makes it easier for me to talk about too. But yes, you're exactly right. You, you kind of just come to that point within yourself where like, this is something I'm ready to say. And this is another piece that I'm ready to say, or this is something I'm ready to write down in my journal, you know, because there are just so many baby steps of like kind of unpacking everything. Cause a lot of it is just like, I feel like it's like saved in these little crystals inside my body. And I'm like, kind of aware of some of them at some point and some of them I'm like yeah I see you over there but you can just yeah. stay <laughs> down there I'm not quite ready to like look at yeah, you. yeah I can't quite metabolize um, this today if it bursts open so let's just keep it <laughs> right keep it in this form yeah and that's why I think therapy is so fantastic because I am talking I'm saying these things to a person who has no connection to my life outside of therapy so it, it does make it a little easier to say some of those things to her because I know one she's probably heard it before I ask her all the times like is this the worst thing you've ever heard and she's like no <laughs> I've heard other people say exactly the same thing and that makes me feel better and then she also like she's not gonna tell anyone I know she's not gonna look at me any differently like it just it's it's it really is just a safe place to say those kinds of things so 100 percent. that was my little yeah um, so one of the things that I wanted to kind of talk about, Mike, is um, the cycle of abuse and kind of looking at the the different ways that someone might be in an abusive relationship. Because we might, so you might be listening to this now and kind of seeing elements of this in your own relationships or of for people that you know. Sure. You know? 
So I pulled up an article from Current Health. Um, it was It's not current any longer because the article is from 2009, <laughs> but it still applies. No longer slightly um, not current. Current-ish health. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And it, it's called um, Know the Signs, basically. And it discussed, like, base, if you or, in this case, somebody that you are friends with, are in a re- abusive relationship like how do you spot mm. it um so i can run through yeah. them really quickly that if you like great. so basically things like if you your friend's partner if you're with them and they constant you constantly see them like name calling their partner or putting them down that's obviously a pretty big red flag mm. right there like if you're with them and like or if you're in a relationship where you're constantly getting put down um, that's probably a sign you're in an abusive relationship. Um, if your partner acts jealous, if you're talking on the phone to someone of the opposite sex, or if you're in a same sex relationship of talking to a person of the same sex, if they are acting jealous, whenever that happens, that's a pretty good warning sign right there. that Things are turning abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, your friend is often apologizing for their partner's behavior, like, oh, they didn't mean it, or they didn't really mean or, you know, they were having a bad day, like, they're always making excuses, it's another thing. Um, frequent last-second cancelizations, you know, if you have to always cancel your plan to the last second, and the reasons are very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're out and your partner is, like, always checking up on you, like, blowing up your phone with texts every few minutes, where are you, where you're coming home, um... If you are starting to give up th- give up on things that used to be important mm. to you, like let's say you used to like have like I don't know, book club that you went to and it's something you look forward to, and all of a sudden you like give up on doing that mm. out of the blue, or other hobbies or other parts of your life that were once important, you start giving them up. Um, things like weight gain, sudden weight gain, a pe- sudden appearance changes, like a drop in your grades. Uh, sudden nosedive in your job performance. Um, you know, the obvious one is like injuries that can't be explained. Um, all those are signs to look out for if a person you know or love is maybe in an abusive relationship. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there were about three or four of those where I was like, yep, yep, yep. But not all mm. of them, too. And I think that's kind of an important right. thing. Like, no abuser, I think, is going to check off every single box, you know? And and this also doesn't mean like if you see your boyfriend acting in one of these ways that necessarily means they're abusive. That's just something to pay attention to and to see like what what are the motivations for this and Mm -hmm. how is this actually making me feel? You know, Um, one thing I always Mm want to say too that my therapist told me and scared the shit out of me (laughs) actually was that if there's choking involved in like an attack that the person she that was something that happened to me and she said okay so when that happens you become seven times more likely to be murdered by that partner you know it have you heard that Mm -hmm. mike i feel like i have not i feel like i've heard that on some (laughs) i don't doubt there's a lot of facts around this stuff that i you know i found myself at some point watching like some horrible show that was like stalked and, you know, and then murdered, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I definitely what I should be watching as a woman, right. you know, at night, like, you know, the standard. Um, but I, I think that they said that too, because, and I, what I'm guessing is, is it's such a, 
it's such a violent and intimate form of, of violence. It's like they're putting their hands on you, you know, it's like versus, yeah. you know, when, when you get into like the pseudoscience of criminal profiling or what have you, um, you know, the, like mm-hmm. I, I think that there's levels of, of violence and, you know, stabbings and chokings are two very, very intimate forms of violence versus something being mediated by a gun or something like that. So if you're if you're with someone and they go as far as to choke you, I mean, that's they have really cross the line like I mean obviously Mm -hmm. yes but like you know so I'm guessing that it's tied to that uh but yeah you know and it feels like they're building up to the act like if they choke you like it's like almost like they're tipping their toes in the water at that point as well to eventually and and I think I think a lot of people don't appreciate how quickly something like that can turn to death even if their intent isn't to kill you you know like i i just i did a mm-hmm. lot of martial arts you know and they, they taught us how to break out of a, of a bunch of choke holds and how to like choke your partner safely and stuff like this to like you know demonstrate the moves and things and they just made such a big point of being like do not choke them or put pressure on the side of their neck on their carotid artery for longer than like a few seconds you know you have to be really careful with this stuff because somebody can just die you know and like so they would they really hammered into our head how careful we had to be with each other so I think a lot of Mm -hmm. assholes out there that like rage out and choke their partner probably just accidentally kill them you know because they're violent idiots you know so Mm -hmm. uh, yeah not not to make a judgment call on it but right well, like a lot of abusive men or a lot of abusive partners, like I don't think they're like sitting and like planning out, hey, I'm going to be abusive in this way today. Like it's a reaction. Like with my first husband, he had a lot of his own untreated he, mental health yes. illnesses. And a lot of the violence was a way to keep me from asking questions about that, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, there was and so and that's kind of what kept me tied to him for a long time. I was like, oh, he needs my help. Um, and then I kind of got to that point where I was like, yeah, this doesn't have to be my problem. This is his problem he's choosing not to deal with. And um, and I, I can't remember where I was going with that. But it's like it's just so complicated. And and I. Yeah, my thought. Ended. No, no, I get it. <laughs> it's, and it's and it's you know, it's it's tre- it's treacherous ground and it's it's complicated and it's yeah. emotionally charged. So. Yeah, it, it just yeah, and it, yeah, and I feel like I'm kind of stumbling over a lot of words just because it is it's hard for me to talk about. It. I'm glad we are, and I want to talk yeah. about it, but just you know, if I say dumb stuff, just, we're not. Um, no, I know. know. I mean, for starters, <laughs> you're not. You you don't sound dumb, but I get it. You know, and I, and I get and I get yeah. really very very fully how hard it is to talk about. You know, <laughs> like yeah. truly, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Um, well, and let's let's talk about, like, leaving this kind of relationship. Because I do think, like, there's part of me that's like, oh, we're talking about some really scary stuff. But I think it's important to note that it can get deadly. Like, it is, this is a serious thing we're seeing. Because there's a big part of me that says, don't question why a woman hasn't left. Like, that's not your decision to make. It's her decision for when she feels ready and when she feels safe. But, I mean, we are also talking about life and death decisions. And so if you see someone or you know someone who's in a relationship like this, like, there's part of me that wants to say, don't don't ask her why she hasn't left yet. Like, what, what could someone do to help someone in that situation, Mike? No, that's very yeah. complicated. Uh, like you just said, because there's it's it's 
because you don't want to close off the avenue of help, too. You know, because I've had friends. I had a friend who called the police one time, and I didn't talk to her for a year after that because I was like, I can't, I can't face you anymore. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you run that risk of the person needs to be ready mm-hmm. to leave. Um, they need to be the ones like they need to have the feel like they have the agency and they have the ability to leave. And what you can do is like make the offer. You can provide information. Like obviously there's like abuse hotlines. Um, You can provide them with information more than anything. You can listen to them, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can listen without, you can listen without judgment. Um, But it's very difficult. And I think in what makes it very insidious is how often abusers trap the person mm-hmm. that's abusing them and make them feel like they are completely cut off from the outside world and they make them completely dependent on the other person. So I can't sit here and tell you like, oh, if you just do like mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, then that person is going to feel like, great, now I can just yeah. pack up and go. Um, what you sometimes see happen is if that the person who is suffering the abuse is seeing someone else that is close to them experience the effects of it. For example, I've worked with mothers that have been abused that once their children have witnessed it, or if the partner then harmed the child, then they found the strength Mm -hmm. to leave because then it wasn't really about them but it was about trying to protect mm-hmm. their children. That's when they found the ability to go. Um, I don't know if that yeah, makes any yeah. sense, yeah. what I just said right there. But yeah, I'm struggling to really put into, uh, to be quite honest with you, I'm like really struggling to put into well, words. Well, and like, that's yeah. because it's, there, it's, I mean, you get into all kinds of things that aren't just psychological. You get into like socioeconomic stuff, like what resources do they have? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's much easier for someone who ends up in an abusive right. relationship but does have a strong, you know, family that, that has resources and money to, to get out because, you know, you can, even though maybe the mm-hmm. abuser has isolated them and convinced them that they can't leave, the family, you know, they, they can. They, they, they've, Technically, yeah. they can. Therefore, if the resource when when the stars align and all the things are right, they they have a place to go that's safe. A lot of women end up, you know, in situations mm-hmm. where they end up homeless, or they, you know, sometimes the shelters are full. Sometimes they have kids, and the shelters don't let them have kids. Or if they do, that you know, they don't feel good about bringing their kids into a shelter situation. And it's like, well, because maybe mm-hmm. they're abusing me, but they haven't hurt the kids. Therefore, I'm not going to yeah. make the kids homeless. And then you get into like issues of custody and, oh, God, if, if I leave with the kids, he's going to come after me and tell people that I was lying and that I'm crazy and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. They're so. There are so many things you have to consider, and that's why so many people are just living this nightmare. I mean, I just listened to this podcast about the DC sniper, and his wife wrote a book 
Um, and it's and she was amazing, just like this wonderful person. And, and she has not gotten the attention she deserves for just being as an, an absolutely heroic as she was through this. But like, you know, when they starve you of your resources and you have no one to turn to, like financially, I think people just, you know, if anybody that's in an abusive relationship, in my opinion, like <laughs> they should just get a check in the mail. And, you know, because like, it's, it's, it's what everybody <laughs> needs. It's like and, and mm-hmm. when, when you're in any position where you're marginalized and, and you just need resources resources and, and that's really what it comes down to a lot of the times is being able to find safety and security from very much the ground level up and that's why there is no easy answer to it because a lot a lot of people are just in situations where they have become so dependent on their abuser that and that's that's the that's the toxic soup that we're that we're in with mm-hmm. this you know and it's what makes it so hard and i can only speak on it from like a professional role like in my role as a counselor, both as a therapist and as a school counselor, I'm what they call a mandated reporter, meaning if I suspect any sort of abuse or neglect, Mm -hmm. I have to report it. And it's not a judgment call, and it's not about judging the person. It's more about taking the facts and allowing an investigation to take place. So I can tell you that, especially with children, I've seen or had to step in in situations where there has been abuse that's been mm-hmm. suspected in the home um, where I've had to make that call and then work with the social services to make sure the child was safely removed from the situation and placed. And there's a lot of follow-up care mm-hmm. that goes into that as well. Um, and when I, when I think about why I didn't leave the biggest, one of the biggest reasons for me was like, I did, I didn't know where to go. Like he knew where he knew every place I would go. Like he knew, where my parents lived. He knew where all of my friends lived. He knew where I worked. So I would have had to give up every single thing in my life to get away. And that's just, I, I, sometimes I wonder what point it would have taken me to actually leave, you know, because I think what we were talking about earlier is you get to a, you get to a turning point and it might be like seeing your child actually abused as well or somebody witnessing it in public and you can't hide it anymore. And I think it's kind of just different for everyone. But it is it's so much harder to leave than people think. And I think like I've had people tell me, no, it's not. You just leave like it's like you just walk out the door and you're great. You know, and I think about so it so like, dismissive. There's a, it's like I can't stand I know. it. No. Oh, um, but like I think about it like there's a, there's a rabid dog on my doorstep and I can maybe wait till this dog is asleep and try to tiptoe past. But like I would have to move all of my stuff out of the house at the same time. And like or I like if you call the police, that person like the police aren't going to guard you 24 hours a day. Like there's there's just so many factors to to think about. And that's one of the things I loved about this movie is showing the lengths that Elizabeth Moss went to to get out of this situation. And I guess maybe to kind of um, tie it back to the movie, I think they did a really good job of showing how dangerous that that is. Because that is one of the most dangerous parts of a relationship is when you actually... Yes make take the steps to walk out and I I think of it as you're not playing along anymore like you're which I don't know if that's a just kind of a me way of saying it but but now that I think about it too like if I did go stay at my parents house I think there's a lot of emotional abuse that happened in my own house you know and so I don't know if that would have been a safer place for me to go Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just it's so insidious and I think it's a lot more prevalent than we really realize it is. You yeah, know? because it doesn't always look like it does in the movies. And I think we just have done a really right. poor job culturally educating 
educating ourselves on on what uh, you know like psycho stuff like this should be taught to children you know like it's like so we should be having right. these conversations and you know you shouldn't be getting it from you know three folks on a podcast like this stuff should be you know I mean but but that's <laughs> yeah. really our our culture's relationship to mental health and to relationship dynamics and all this stuff has a long way to go you know and I and I that's really why does. I do think it's this mm-hmm. movie has some legs for for being willing to go there in a mainstream way and show it. So, and that's why in schools now, like social emotional learning is becoming mm-hmm. so much more important. And you're seeing modules on like self regulation and emotional intelligence and yes. self control and empathy being. I don't want to say taught in schools, but like counselors are having a much larger role in terms of like identifying the kids where this might Mm -hmm. be a skill they're lacking in and trying to help them develop it. Because let's face it, like you're not going to use algebra once you're out of eighth (laughs) grade. Like you're never going to be in a situation at work and you're going to be like, oh my God, I really (laughs) need the Pythagorean theorem right now in order to fix this problem. But you are going to be in a situation where you have a a supervisor or a coworker or a client that Mm -hmm. is pushing your hot buttons and you're going to need to have like a intelligent and respectful conversation with them. And a lot of people like lack that ability. Yeah. I, in my job, I have been writing social and emotional lessons, um, which was really fun to work on because I agree like that is something that we are those are skills we're not given as children and we learn them as adults by having to unlearn so many things that we've used as coping Um, because like we're our kids are going to grow up to have relationships as adults and I think if I have like one mission in life other than just to everybody read Stephen King it's um like I want to really normalize therapy for men because I feel like we have this idea that um men to feel emotions is weak and that we and that men it's something men don't do and I feel like so much of my life would be different if key men in my life had gone to therapy or had grown (laughs) up understanding like different like relationship dynamics that they were in and I just think like it's so important to learn those coping skills early so that you recognize those kinds of things so let's talk about how kind of what we see some of this that we've just been talking about how we see it represented in the movie Um, and one of the things that I mentioned it a little bit earlier but I love that so much of the focus of this movie is on Cecilia and how she is experiencing everything because you you have no one else to identify with. You can't identify with Adrian and make excuses for him, which I think a lot of movies do or, or would be a really easy thing for the movie to do. Like other than and this maybe this is a time to talk about that choice you were talking about at the beginning mike but like we don't really see him until the very end and we see him in glimpses but we don't see his face clearly and i think that i really love that they made that choice um because it just it keeps so much of the focus on cecilia yeah it's a really good for building up like dramatic tension from a cinematic sense and it's also a really good move like as a conceptual gesture for the subject matter because it's like you know the abusers have had enough attention like let's let's yeah. give the attention to this woman who is fighting for her life like I think it's a really I think it's yeah. a really good move 
Yeah, and even like this the scene where she is attacked in the kitchen, like you can't see the attacker, you just see how she is responding to it. And that kind of I, I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's how a panic attack can feel for me sometimes. It's like things are coming from all over. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know if they're real, but it just feels like, like there's something that's going to get me. And sometimes it feels like kind of the upside down and stranger things too. It's like, this looks like my house, but I don't know what's behind that curtain or I don't know, like everything is sinister now. And so I thought that was really like a strong depiction of that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it, it works It works on a couple of levels. It's working on the horror film level, like the scares, the jump scares, mm-hmm. and the like, oh, like what's coming at you? And, and it works on the conceptual level of how that would really feel. Yeah, and but then you also have like the he's invisible, <laughs> you know, uh, right, element yeah. of it. So and I think it, I think that a lot of those were really good choices from the filmmakers, you know. Um, but I do yeah. think I, I am interested to hear more what, what you thought, Mike, about that move at the beginning, because I thought that was a really interesting point. Oh God, I think that this opening scene is so brilliant. I think that it's like a masterclass in how you build tension. Um, it perfectly establishes the mood of the film. It sets these very dramatic stakes. And Elizabeth Moss, I mean, I've watched a few seasons of Mad mm-hmm. Men and understood how good she was as Peggy in that show. Um, I haven't watched... The Handmaid's Tale, because yeah. like, yeah. I just my don't therapist really actually recommended I not point. watch that. Show. Yeah, right always, yeah. um, I watched the first two seasons yeah. and I couldn't keep going, but she's great right. in it. But it is so, absolutely yeah. misery porn, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but her face in that moment mm-hmm. when she's like disabling the security cameras, it absolutely tells a story that was many many years in the making, and I think it's so well done. What I would have changed is. Adrian running to the Mm -hmm. car, smashing the window and choking her. And the reason I would do that is because you don't see Adrian again Mm -hmm. until the last scene, like the coda really of the movie overall. So you could very much, because at that point, like once he does Mm -hmm. that, you know that she's the victim of horrific abuse. You completely understand it. And I think what this movie posits throughout it is all of these other people and Cecilia's life mm-hmm. she's trying to make them understand what she's gone through and she she just can't verbalize it she can't do it and um like I think her sister mm-hmm. to a point has her I back until the that. point that she doesn't <laughs> um away you would respect your audience a little bit more because you would challenge them to look within their themselves and ask like do I believe her or mm-hmm. how much do I believe her like, how bad was it actually? Because even in that last scene in the movie, like, Adrian never threatens her. Mm-hmm. Adrian, he puts his hands in her in a controlling way, when he re- in a very familiar way when he puts it on her leg at a time where she's not ready for him to be familiar with her mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely a glint of malice in his tone to her. Like, he gets what he deserves at the end of this movie, as far as I'm concerned. But you could have gone through that whole movie and wonder, like, well, was it Tom the whole time? Like, was Adrian actually kidnapped by the brother? Was Mm -hmm. it actually, you know, was he set up by the brother? And you remove that, I think, when you have that moment where he smashes the window. It becomes like a very 1980s thriller at that Mm -hmm. point. Like, I'm thinking of, like, sleeping with the enemy at that point. Um, (laughs) if, If you... If you removed that moment, 
moment, I think you have like a bit more nuance and a bit richer, especially in this moment that we live in right now where we constantly are getting stories in the Me Too in the in the Me Too movement. And hey, within the horror community as well, we're seeing mm-hmm. that come up time and time again. And where do you draw the line? Who do you I don't want to say who do you believe, but I guess wonder like how do you like what extent are you willing to go to bat for them? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think, I mean, there, there there's a couple moments. I I agree with that assessment. I think that's it was it's a, a good insight into something that would have, and it's these little things in this movie that make me like it less. That that I feel like it doesn't quite rise to the level of. You know, not mm-hmm. to be super pretentious, but like art, you know, um, yeah. it, it just because it it and I think you you nailed it with by saying not respecting the audience enough, like it shows its hand a little too much at times. And then like the thing with the sister, like I get that it's supposed to be like here he's done something to alienate her further from her family. And I get I get that from like a narrative sense, but I almost so like. I'm supposed to believe that this is all it would take for the sister to totally like dismiss her after seeing everything else that she had gone through. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, well, that's where I started disengaging from the movie a little bit. Cause I felt like I don't, I don't buy yeah. this, you know? Um, so, so there's, there's those little moments in the movies that, that, that I feel dis- distracts from what is otherwise a really strong plot and really a really strong. Um, I do think one of, of the strengths kind of, of the movie is that it begins at the end of the relationship. Yeah. So so we don't really know what the yeah, relationship Yeah, that's brilliant. Is. Great. You Great. get the sense that the relationship is strained between the two sisters because when the sister first reappears to break the news that Adrian is dead, Cecilia tears into her like, I told you not to come. Get out of here. He's going to follow you. Like, she's angry that she shows up. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of like, thank God it's another friendly face. Um, so you don't know how strained that relationship was to begin mm-hmm. with. But you're right. Like, that email is so over the top and when cecilia says like i didn't write this i promise you like i did not write this that that should at least give a moment for pause to say either a someone is fucking with you or b you're suffering from a severe mental illness and need help right now right exactly yeah yeah, and I wrote down, like, the language that Emily uses, I wrote down what she said because it just, like, it's such hurtful language. She says, if you're too stupid to know who the good guys are and too weak to get away from the bad guys, which I can't imagine how many times Cecilia has said that to herself. Exactly. She doesn't need her, like, only support. Now, we do see the email, and it is harsh. But, yeah, I feel like that's that is a big red flag too. Like Mike, what you were saying, one of the things that I love about this movie and part of kind of what I was writing about is if there, if Adrian was actually dead, Cecilia would probably still experience a lot of these things. Like a lot of the things that she feels are not necessarily because there is an invisible person tormenting her. Although I think I love that metaphor for what that kind of PTSD reaction is. I think it's Mm -hmm. a digestible way of showing it to people who haven't experienced it. But like the staring at doors, I do that all the time. And I was watching this movie and I was like, oh my God, it really kind of brought it up. Like there was, my office, we just move our desks around all the time. And I was at, moved into like my desk was in a position and I just kept looking at the doorway and it it kept making me uncomfortable and I couldn't like I couldn't take my eyes away from it and it took me a couple of weeks there to realize it 
there was nothing between me and the doorway. And it was making me so uncomfortable to not have anything to hide behind. Um, and then I started thinking, oh, in my last job, there was a door that I don't know why it made me so nervous, but it really did. Um, and so every time she looks at a doorway, it was like, yeah, maybe he's there, but maybe he's not. And maybe this is just how she is responding to like spending how many years in this hypervigilant state. You yes. Know? And, she's, and that's the hypervigilance is really important because it's like you can't just turn that off after you, you've gotten used to living with that for Mm-hmm. Who knows how long? I exactly. Mean, Moss Moss has this posture of tension throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Like there's never a moment where she relaxes until the last moment of the film where uh-huh. she slowly exhales and then you see years of tension mm-hmm. roll off her shoulders. Yeah. Um it's really like you find yourself tensing up watching the movie. You find yourself kind of like mimicking her posture throughout mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that it ends right there too because odds are the next day she's going to tense up again and she's going to mm-hmm. like go revisit like once you you gain that power back you still have those symptoms are still going to come up and there's not, it's like getting married. Isn't the end of the story. You still continue with life. And like what we were saying about leaving the relationship, like there's still, those things are still going to come up a lot. And I just really appreciated seeing so much of that, but also that we could end on that really empowering note, especially because it like bookends the film. It's like she was leaving the house terrified when we see her and now she's leaving it confidently and Uh on her own terms. And I just absolutely loved that. Yeah, I will say the beginning and the very end of this film, I'm you know, I'm on board with those. Right. <laughs> the, the, the overall shape is really smart and really, mm-hmm. you know, and, and very uh, empowering. So that's really good. Yeah, I think so too. I also, there was with Emily moments where she, th- and even with James, where they thought they were helping her and what they were doing was re-traumatizing her. Yeah. Like at one point, <laughs> Emily looks at Cecilia and goes, tell me what he did to you. Mm-hmm. And it's a demand. It's not a request. It's not yep. saying you've been through a lot. When you're ready to discuss it, I'm here. I'm yep. really sorry you went through it. Yeah. It's tell me what he, it's, it's another person making another demand of her. And it's not, it's Cecilia's story to tell, not Emily's story to hear. Right. Uh, and the language is so important there. Yeah, and I think that I wrote that down too. The the language there is so important because she says, "Can you tell me that?" And my hypervigilant brain hears that as, "Am I strong enough to say it? Am I good enough to say it?" And if I can't, that is a failure on me. And, um, and and no one should be putting you in that position. Like exactly. you know, you have to have a certain level of empathy and respect for other people to say like. You know, when you make demands, you don't know what that's bringing up in that person. You know, right. that you're demanding it of, and and that's so. I think that's a really important call out. Like, yeah, and some very well intentioned people have asked me what happened, and they and or like, can you talk to me? Like, they've they've said that, and that's it's not a bad thing that they did it. I think you just have to really be sensitive to how much each and every word matters. Like one mm-hmm. of the other things that bothered me was they kept saying he'll haunt you if you let him or don't let him win. And I was like, I'm not letting anybody win. Like this is a real thing that happens. And one, it's not a fucking game that one person wins or loses. And two, Mm -hmm. like that implies a level of control 
that I don't have yet. You know, like, yeah, yeah I would love to not have fucking PTSD reactions. Like, I would right. love for things not to trigger me. It's not like I want this. It's I'm not letting it happen, you know. And I and I can so picture the the kind of well-meaning person that would make a statement like that and I still want to just punch him right in the mouth. But I, know. I mean, yeah. but I but I but I do think I think I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people uh, are 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 trying to be helpful and they don't have the language to yeah. to, to do it with because they they frame things as very simple when they're not, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like I had like effective support. So if someone has left an abusive relationship like I one of the things I do think is great is that James does open his home to her and he lets her like it, it's implied that it's been a couple of weeks that she's staying there and there's really no end in sight and he kind of takes mm-hmm. her in as a piece of his own family and I love that they did not really imply any kind of romantic relationship there uh-huh. that yeah. it wasn't like replacing one with another because um, I do think that's an effective way to support her but I think I think to fit the dynamic of the story, sometimes it goes a little overboard, like with her reaction and with his reaction. And when he's later talking about how he failed her, I just think it's oversimplified a little bit, you know, it it all feels a little weird because they haven't really defined the James and, and his daughter character to her. And like, it feels like they're invested, but they're not. It's just like, that's what I I struggled with their characterization because they felt like avatars for, what like a good friend would do in that situation but that be they didn't really flesh out those characters beyond that so i appreciate the gesture of that in the story and and i agree like that's ideally what you would want when escaping a a, a, you know domestic abuse situation is a a safe secure place to be and where you can heal because you need if you don't have that you're you're really going to struggle more right yeah. What yeah. what I took from James on the rewatch too was how quickly he wanted to let Adrian off the hook at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like when there's after Tom is shot dead in the home and he is kind of um I don't want to say confronting Cecilia. I think he's trying to advise her in that moment saying, "Okay, look, like we found the person that was doing this. There are people at the hospital that can obviously say all the strange shit they saw and they knew that it wasn't you. And by the way, like we know that it wasn't Adrian, like he was a victim too. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, it's the brother was the culprit. Adrian is, he can't fathom or even entertain this idea that like Adrian and the brother, uh, I think it's Tom, were in on it together. Mm-hmm. And Cecilia's trying to tell him, like, I know how this works. Like, you don't understand. He makes me feel like I'm the crazy one. And she tells the people in her life this over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what he does to me. He makes me look like I'm the bad person. Um, and he manipulates everyone around. And James can't understand that he's like no no this is what you should do instead Mm -hmm. um he's very quick to want to absolve aid adrian and say like nope he's not the bad guy he's not he's a victim too Mm -hmm. which is so weird to me i mean i guess that was another moment where i questioned that reaction from the character because it conveniently serves the plot but doesn't feel believable to me you know i I was just like huh like what why you know and i and i get that abusers are often very good at manipulating the people around them and, and making people think, you know, that yes, this, the, per, their, their partner is the bad one and all this. Like I get all those 
element, you know, those potential things that they were going for. I just didn't believe the way that it played out in this movie. You know, I was just like, "Mm, no, I don't, I can't. And then, then I disengaged, you know, but that's just the reaction I had. I think when I look at James's reaction, it did frustrate me, but it felt very real, you know, not necessarily in terms of the, the actual plot dynamics of the movie, but I feel like, so many people are just willing to say, I, this is too uncomfortable for me to yes. deal with. So I would mm-hmm. like, like, here's an easy answer. Here's a way for us to wrap this up. And, and you just go get therapy and you're going to be fine. You know, and I feel like, um, like there's a level of dealing with this. And I, I hesitate to say this, but part of this whole thing and recovering from it, unfortunately, is admitting that it's unlikely that a lot of people are going to get justice for what happened or that the Mm -hmm. abuser is ever going to admit that it happened or that anybody is ever going to believe it was as bad as it actually was. Um, And when I think about like, she just wants people to believe her that this happened. Like she, you see her at the dinner table at the very end. She just wants him to say it. She just wants somebody else to say this really happened. This really hurts this bad. And cause that's the thing. Like if I told people like a list of things that happened, like I don't think they would not believe me when I think of like people believing me, I think I want them to just understand it's real. Like the pain that these things cause is real. Yes. It hurts really bad. Yes. It's like something I struggle with every day. It's not something I'm, I'm not letting him win. And so I think that was something that I did like seeing acknowledged because he does, he just wants to wrap it up and he wants to move on. And I think there's a part of us that wants to say like, we do, we don't want to admit that this could happen and we didn't see it, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's like, if we can just, move on and we've got our answer and the SVU episode is now over and we which to be on. fair yeah I was gonna say the character is a cop and that seems like a very cop response so like right. well we solved the case yeah bad there's no other deeper issues at play here you know so, right like, yeah although yeah. on the other hand there's like a level of like do you want to put yourself out there like is it easier to just say what you need to say to the rest of the world and then deal with what you need to deal with in private. And I, I hesitate to say that too, because I don't want to say that speaking your truth out loud is not important, but it's hard and you have to, you need to be ready to do that and you need to have support when you do that. Yeah. And that's what I was getting at earlier with like, you should only feel like, you know, feel empowered to speak your truth, but don't feel like you have to, you know, right. do it on your, do it on your own terms. You know, no, you don't owe anyone anything really. Yeah. Uh, it's your story. Yeah. And there's, you know, one of the things we see currently is there's this really disgusting push. We're seeing these rollbacks of rules that have been meant to protect survivors of sexual assault on campus are seeing these rules rolled Mm -hmm. back and there's this idea now that we want to protect those accused of abuse Mm. as opposed to because that's the real problem clearly they're the victims you know this me too has gotten out of hand (laughs) and there's this idea that like well what if we just make the per the two parties like meet with one another face to face and they can kind of litigate it and solve it together and it's such a backwards awful terrible way Of thinking, like, if you want to absolutely roll back any sense of progress that a victim might have made, then yes, do this, please, because that will be the 
outcome that you're going to achieve. Exactly. So. That really that really feels like one of those the cruelty is the point mm-hmm. moves yeah. on the part of mm-hmm. that administration where you're like, yeah. what would bring you to say that? Well, except if your your main goal was to inflict pain on someone, you yeah. know. I, and you you see that in this movie. Not just at the end of the movie, but the scene, like the scene where like Tom has to read his brother's will to her. Mm-hmm. He starts reading her the letter. And, you know, thankfully, that's the probably the Emily's best moment in the whole film I think so too. where she's like, nope, we're not going to do this. You can say he's like, well, I'm just trying to do my job. It's like your job is to tell us the money that she's getting. Yep. It's not here to re-traumatize her. That's probably the, her best moment in the film. But you see, like, again, like these way these these manipulations and, and mechanisms that abusers use mm-hmm. in order to kind of traumatize their victims and to put put them under their thumb. Yeah, mm-hmm. and how easy it is for everyone to just go along because that's what our society does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's always easier to just let something happen than to speak up against it because that mm-hmm. puts you in a place of conflict and it's unpleasant. And I think we have like generally been socialized to avoid conflict and avoid making people uncomfortable even when you're being victimized (laughs) like it's so fucked up right Uh, yeah and that's what like one thing I will say is it is really hard to talk about this stuff um and like I feel like we need to hear the voices of survivors of these things and I want to like share my experiences but sometimes it's just really hard and I just can't and I need to just step back and that's when we need the allies who's like insides aren't being ripped open by sharing and talking about how important these things are to kind of step in and talk about it for us because it's just it's it's really hard and I think if there's one thing this movie does really well is it shows why it's so hard and why like and how hard it is and because most people don't believe you Mm mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think, you know, when when we start talking about these things, we will see probably a pattern that we're just talking about trauma over and over again in its many manifestations. And yeah. I think like a big part of the dialogue that I was seeing on social media uh, about after, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd murder um was don't make don't turn to like the you know, black people in your life and ask, like, explain this to me. Don't make them do the emotional labor. Like, go, mm-hmm. you know, that part of being an ally is recognizing, like, respecting other people's boundaries and that, you know, they, they don't they don't have to do the emotional labor for, for you. So it's very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, if you are the one who has experienced relationship, domestic, you know, partner abuse, like, if you if it's on your own terms, you can absolutely tell your story and you should feel empowered to do so. But no one should make you feel like, this is like you teaching them that's right that's on, that's on the if you want to be a good ally it's on you to 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 figure out how to do that like never put someone in the position of being like don't do what the sister did in this movie and be like tell mm-hmm. me your story right what did he do to you like you know right. like that that's that's a bad move no matter the context yeah yeah google exists yeah like, <laughs> believe dip- it or not <laughs> exactly like you have access to that same information that is one like in the movie 50 50 which is with jordan gordon levitt joseph gordon levitt has cancer like the moment at the end where you see that the friend had been reading how to be a support system the whole time and didn't put that burden on him i love that moment and there is lots of information about how you can support your friends 
um, without re-traumatizing them. Or if you're in a relationship with someone like my, I'm remarried to someone and this affects our relationship and we are in therapy to learn how to deal with that kind of stuff. And it's not easy, but it's, you know, it's, it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be is my Mm -hmm. catchphrase, I think. Um, yeah. One of the things I did want to talk about with this movie, though, um, we talked about it a lot in our last episode, is gaslighting. Because I think last week, last two weeks ago in Midsummer, we saw it in action. Like, we saw a lot of the words that Christian was using. And here we see, like, such an on-the-nose portrayal of gaslighting, which I kind of love because I feel like a lot of people say that word and don't quite understand what it really is and how it can affect someone. But we see like the scene where she walks away from the kitchen and he turns the stove up, you know, that's such a clear moment of gaslighting, you know? Yeah. It's literally gas stove. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah. No, 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 you're right. No, I mean, yeah, I I think that that's kind of like, this is it taken to its like logical extreme, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to make everyone think that you murdered your sister. I'm going to make everyone think that you're the one doing all these crimes. Like that's like taken to, to such an extreme where again in midsummer, it's so small and quiet, but Mm -hmm. no, no less important, but it's just two, two very um, different ends of the spectrum. But even a smaller moment when she goes for the job interview and her portfolio Mm -hmm. is not in the case that she packed. I mean, I can very easily see a partner who does not want their victim to work because that would give them independence. It would give them more social contact. Mm -hmm. It would show them it would show them succeeding Mm -hmm. in other areas. Like I could easily see them sabotaging that portfolio before. Um, they were to leave for an interview. So like you see it there. The one criticism I've seen of that scene is like, you do see her suffer like kind of a panic attack. And then like the diazepam she's in kicks Mm -hmm. in, um, in order for that to occur. Like the criticism I've seen is like for, in order for that to really occur, like she would have to have been so drugged up beforehand that she would not have been able to walk to the Mm, interview. Yeah let alone conduct it. But, you know, overall, like, that's such a really powerful scene because you see her, like, doubt herself Mm -hmm. in that moment. Like, absolutely doubt herself. And all she can focus on is this, like, self-reflection and self-criticism. Even though she knows damn well she packed that in her portfolio. And if if she had still been Mm -hmm. in the relationship, if that was, like, something somebody was doing to their active partner and no Invisisuits involved, um, like, they would go home and be like, it's not in my portfolio. And then they'd be like, you, what did, did you forget it? Did you mm. forget it? Like mm-hmm. knowing full well that they removed it. Like, how could you forget it? God, You're so like forgetful. You, yeah. And yeah, not again, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. that, exactly. and that, that would be the full gaslight experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just this level of control. Um, and I was reading, I'm going to link a bunch of articles, but apparently Lee Winnell did a bunch of interviews. People who have been in deb- Fuck words today, man. People who've been <laughs> in intimate partner um, violent situations and people who work in support groups for those kinds of um, situations. Um, and one of the things he talked about was a man who would like put a lock on the refrigerator and only he had the combination to try to like control what the partner ate. Um, <laughs> and I I'm making that angry making... <laughs> face. Yeah, I just no. got really scrunched up. And, like, yeah. Rrr. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's one of the things she talks about too is like he controlled everything I did. Um, and he even started to control her thoughts. And I love that moment in the film because I mean, he didn't control her thoughts, honestly. There there logically is no way that you can, but the amount of control and gaslighting and manipulation, like he might as well have, because you can't see right. outside of that. And I liked that moment. Well, because you no longer start to think like, what would I do in this situation? But you start to think, what would I do that would please uh-huh. this person? Like, what would be satisfactory to my partner? That's what I'll do. So that's the way the thoughts are controlled. You're no longer working on any sort of autonomous level. And and there's a difference between like, what should I do that would please my partner? Because like, I want to please them because it will make both of our... Because like, I have points where like, and, and my wife even said to me today, because I've been like super... On edge and like, just like, I feel tense and pissed off. I all can't the time. imagine why. And I know <laughs> yeah, what's going know. on that could and cause my, this. And, mm-hmm. and, and my wife said to me today, "It's like, oh, you know, like you've been awesomely, you've been like really pleasant, and like I'm not. There's no tension in the house." And I'm like, "Really?" I'm like, "I gotta be really honest with you. Like, I'm pissed off all the time right mm-hmm. now. But I think like I'm making like a conscious like before I say something, how will that play out? And like, this is the CBT I use with mm-hmm. myself, like." Here is how the conversation will play out. These are the negative effects it's going to have. And it's going to like, these are the consequences and how it's going to ruin the day. So if I slightly shift my tone or say this instead, then, you know, like, here's what's going to come across at that point. That's different from like, how do I answer this situation so that I'm not hit, so that I'm not yelled at, so that I'm not demeaned. Like, what's going to please Yeah, they've basically treated you like Pavlov's dogs. They've done, like, operant conditioning on you to know that, like, every time I do X, Y, or Z, I get hit in the face or, you know, and I end it's really that simple you know and yeah. that's a very br- that's mm-hmm. a w- really a way to psychologically brutalize someone you know and it's yeah. awful and i will say that is something that i've carried with me out outside of the relationship like that is one of like a really hard thing to lose and i noticed a little while ago that planning making plans with men was a trigger for me like any kind of man especially when there was like a calendar involved because that was a big trigger in my first relationship was when I would try to pin him down to like a time he was going to be home like that was when a lot of the outbursts would happen Uh, and so I started to notice that I was like trying to think through how I would approach Corey about a conversation for making plans for the weekend before I actually mm-hmm. did. And that's not because of anything Corey did. And Corey is great and always receptive to that. But that was that was a pattern that I had learned that this is the safe way you start this conversation and anything else is dangerous, even though the evident like that wasn't the reality I was living in anymore. Mm hmm. Yep. It's like, again, like hypervigilance, like any of these other things, you live with it for long enough, you can't just shut it off. That's something you're going to have to work through. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can do it. And there are things like I've started realizing a lot of those things and started like making plans. Like ironically, now I work my, like I have that conversation with myself and I'm like, okay, it's okay to say these things that you're safe right now. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is, it's just, it's, those kinds of things stick with you you know like one of the 
I, I really didn't cry very much when I watched this movie the first time, but the time that I did, the time, the time that really affected me was the moment with the ladder and she's giving them gifts and it's like this happy moment. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking and I was like, that's not real. That's a lie. You're stupid for believing that this happiness is something that can exist for you again. And that was, that's something I've kind of had to work through and I still, I don't know if I'm there yet, but you just, you start to blame yourself for everything. Part of because of the manipulation that we were talking about, like, oh, I am forgetful. I'm just a forgetful person. And that is why he's so mad at me right now is because I fucked this thing up, not because he is manipulating me for his own whatever reasons. But it's like you just live with, and it's kind of what you were talking about at the beginning, Mike, like you live with this sense of I exist for other people instead of existing for myself because you are just constantly trying to think through somebody else's actions and how are my actions affecting someone else. And if this person had an outburst, I must have done something wrong. And if I can just not do that thing wrong next time, everything's fine. And that was one of the reasons that I didn't leave is because I didn't want people to know that I had done those wrong things that caused that outburst. Even though that's not reality, his actions are his own and not like it would have been something else. Like there's, there's always a trigger when it's like building and building. And then I said, what time are you going to be home today? And that's what snapped it, you know? Oh, sorry. That was <laughs> a long rambling, but yeah, it's just, it's so insidious and it is hard to get yourself out, but you can, you know, you can absolutely get yourself out. It's going to be work, but you know, and, and, but it, it, it can happen. It absolutely right. can happen. Um, yeah, we don't always get the gratification of uh, sh shooting them in their palatial modernist mansion, right, or anything yeah. like that. But you know, it can you can still you can still have closure for yourself. You can, yeah, and that might like it just looks different for everybody. And some of those baby steps are are closure, like not being afraid to ask Corey what time he's going to be home is a, a that's a step that's overcoming something, you know. So, um. Well, is there anything else that we want to talk about that we haven't covered? I think, like, I, I could see us coming back around to this topic again, maybe leaning a little more into, like, kind of rape revenge kind of movies mm -hmm. or, like, the sexual violence. But is there anything for right now that we want to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet? I, I just thought that, like, the idea of telling this story or really framing the story of abuse through like the invisible man was really brilliant because the abuse isn't seen in the movie because others don't witness the abuse. It's therefore mm -hmm. not real at that point that it's, it's casually dismissed. And I think I said this like way back at the beginning of the recording is that like we often hear, we know people that have committed horrific things or have like abused persons and to various degrees. And we, either dismiss it because we can't believe I think a we can't believe that person is capable of it but we also don't want to believe in ourselves that we would associate mm -hmm. with someone mm -hmm. like that um, or we're quick to forgive them if they show any sort of mm -hmm. contrition we're immediately like okay it's over mm -hmm. put it behind us like why won't you just kind of forgive them so I thought telling this through I mean t through the, the this story through like the invisible man is really great um, and I know we're, we don't really talk about plot or like technical achievement, but my God, the effects mm -hmm. in this movie 
and like the the technical achievements that are done in this movie like anything lee won and i think he's doing like the wolfman next with mm. with uh is it ryan Gosling? oh my god <laughs> i wanted to say i wanted to say it was like ryan larson from um you know who which i absolutely would you know from the keep screaming podcast which yes, I would watch. yeah <laughs> let's put it that i would absolutely watch that movie i would um, too yeah he's got to be for it let's say absolutely but you know like anything that like one all wants to do and i would say go back watch upgrade watch yeah. cooties like cooties is like, i never did see that oh my god it's so good okay it's i'm gonna so... i've been looking for a good fun horror movie because that's like a kind yeah. of a horror comedy right like mm-hmm. it, it's total horror comedy yeah um, I think it's on, it, it, you know, it was on Hulu for a long time. I think you have to pay to rent it now. Mm-hmm. But um, it's like if you just, especially right now, if you're a parent and you've been in lockdown with your children and oh, you just yes. want to like just see a bunch of like fourth graders get really fucked up, <laughs> then like absolutely, <laughs> that is the best therapy I can. And that was our that was our family movie night one night. My wife, my daughter, and I threw that mm-hmm. on. You know what's really funny? The other night, I took my daughter to see the first two Evil Dead movies at a drive-in. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so fun! What a good way to see them too. Her, her friend's mom dropped her off, and my daughter said, "Like, yeah, we went to see the Evil Dead last night." And the mom looked at us like, what are those movies? And then Ada described in detail what happens. And the Aww. look the look of horror, this woman, and she goes, well, you're not going to let my daughter watch that, right? And I'm like, no, of course I'm not going to let your daughter watch. You know, I'm going to put on like Sallow, 120 Days of Sodom for them. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. You know? Let's watch a Serbian film together. I would, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my son just watched um, The Witches today, and he's almost six. Mm-hmm. And it was a little scary for him. Like, he kept kind of covering his eyes. Uh, like, it's a little scary. That's a but, classic one that you should be mildly traumatized as by a child. and that, But it's a good kind of like, mm-hmm. eh, you know. Right. Yeah, but by the end, he was like, yeah, I liked it a lot. I want to watch it again. And I was like, oh. And it reminded me of your story about um, The Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah. Laura. Yeah, I was like, oh. Um, but I, that's one of the things I do really like about this movie is it is very effectively scary in places. And I was mm-hmm. on like, I think we've talked about some valid criticisms of the movie, but what this movie gets right, I think it really gets right. And it does very yeah. well. Like there's the moment with the paint can in the attic that mm-hmm. just, and even though I'd seen it in the trailers, it still got me. And I will say, I mean, my criticisms of it, I think, were are they maybe felt more pronounced even my in my reaction to the movie because there's such good stuff in there, and I get more annoyed when movies I think are so close to being great mm-hmm. and then get something like wrong. I'm like, no, you know, I just I get more frustrated with that than an outright bad movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, because then I, you can kind of just go along for the ride, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not thinking through this too much, so I can just have fun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean. Nope, nope, I didn't have a thought. I just went, yeah, and then didn't have a thought. Um, well, <laughs> but I would say this is this is a strong recommend. I think so, me. too, yeah. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but I think there's so much here, and I think it fits into where we are right now as a society and, like, kind of – I don't like calling things Me Too movements because I think that kind of – or Me Too movies because I think that kind of minimizes um, the Me Too – I don't know, something that kind of means a lot to me. But I do think this fits into a conversation that we're having right now, and we need to be having a lot more so that we can start getting past the big 
the broad strokes of this and start getting into the the fine details of what do we really do in this situation because every situation is going to be different and you can't mm-hmm. like what we were talking about at the beginning you can't make a list of right things to do you have to really understand it on its own terms and start trying to like work through it based on the people and so maybe that kind of leads us into treatment for this so like Mike what should Cecilia do now now that she's out well let's talk about some possibilities of what of what Cecilia could do and this is um one of many um and I you know we were I know we were kind of like off air when um, there was a discussion of EMDR, and I'm wondering, um, Laura, how comfortable are you discussing your experience with that? And if you're if you're like not at all, then like that's totally fine. I'll I'll move on with I with what I have. <laughs> no, I don't care. I don't care. I have, I, I I'm. I'm one of these, at this point in my life, I'm like, I'll talk about anything. What do you want? Mm-hmm. Listen to me. Um, but So yeah. I'm going to see, so I'm going to save what I have for a different episode then. Cause I really liked your discussion of like what you were saying about it, because like I haven't experienced that firsthand. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm going to put aside what I had for this week and I can always use it. Cool. Cause we're, we're going to revisit yeah. trauma. Yeah. Uh, oh, we'll be revisiting know. this trauma. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's going to keep coming back and back. But anyway, um, EMDR, oh, God, I've like Google what it exactly stands for. I know it's like eye movement desensitization retraining, I think is what it stands yep, for. Yeah. And yep. um, it, it is. <laughs> I did it. Yay. <laughs> it's it's a it's a very specific form of therapy prescribed typically for PTSD. Um, or traumatic memories. And it you literally I mean, in, in the most. oversimplified terms you do something that gives you bilateral stimulation so that is either watching a a dot of light move from side to side from left to right left to right or watching your therapist's hand move left to right left to right or sometimes it involves little paddles that you hold and and they vibrate in, in um one left hand right hand left hand right hand but basically you do this while walking through the traumatic memory with your therapist in a very prescribed manner that they they sort of teach you how to do in the first few sessions um and you are basically the way that uh, my therapist described it to me is that when when you have a traumatic memory like most memories are are moving along on the conveyor belt of your experience you have breakfast that goes on the conveyor belt and you have lunch and that goes on the conveyor belt and you walk your dog and that goes on and when you have something traumatic happen to you it kind of gets stuck and the conveyor belt just keeps like er, er, Mm -hmm. er, er." (laughs) that's that's my my non-verbal way of, of describing that and uh and you, so you keep revisiting the memory, whether that's through the full-blown, like, you know, classic PTSD that you, you know, you've seen depicted with in media with soldiers, or if it's just like something you just, that keeps becoming an intrusive thought that you can't, you know, which is like, in my, my case, it was like just something I found myself just thinking about every day and replaying this very specific sequence of events. Because in my case, I was dealing with a very specific single traumatic memory that I wanted to work on. Um so it helps you basically reprocess that memory while having this stimulation does something that I cannot really very well articulate in, in the way that your brain um, processes memories and helps move it from 
the part of your brain that is revisiting it to somewhere where it's more in like your long-term memory storage. It kind of moves it on through the conveyor belt, like all the other banal memories. Um, and then you no longer have to, the idea being you no longer have have such an intense fixation on it or such intense physiological reactions to it. Um, and there's a lot of science. It sounds, I know it sounds like I said a little earlier, it sounds a little wooey woo. It sounds a little like Reiki or something mm-hmm. where somebody waves their hand and you're like, fine. But it really does have a lot of scientific validity to it in the way that it's been studied. And um, I had a pretty positive experience with it. I'm sort of on hold with it right now because of pandemic stuff, uh, because of these fun super cool pandemic times we live in um but and you know so but but I I do think it's really interesting and something I I would definitely recommend to anyone who's really stuck with some traumatic memories that they are finding to be maladaptive to their life yeah it is something that I've considered and have been and and I'm so happy to hear you talk about that because I've been a little bit afraid of it and that kind of demystifies you know and, and I'll say, you know, because I, I know to the point of being afraid of it, because you do kind of have to face your memories, they spend so many sessions, almost like an annoying amount of time teaching you how to regulate and how to come down. And they do this like visualization thing where you visualize a happy place so that the idea being you never leave a session like super worked up by the uh, the last couple of minutes of every session are spent bringing you back down, bringing you to a place where you're not as reactive so that you don't leave the office just like... A total mess mm. um, or leave your computer screen a total mess because this is something that can be done remotely. Mm. There are there are, there are a lot of apps and things because basically you just need a, a very simple thing to, you know, it's almost similar to like those biarnal beats or whatever they call them when you listen to those like relaxation apps. If you can put on your headphones, it can be like burr, 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 uh, in your left ear, right ear, left ear. It can be a little dot on your screen. It is something that is totally adaptable to being in a remote environment, which I know is important to a lot of people yeah. right now. Yeah. Interesting. The, yeah, and it's something where I've recommended specific clients to undergo this therapy. Like I've worked with a number of trauma patients, and there's a couple schools of thought with trauma where you could either A, say you're here to deal with your trauma and this is what we're going to work on and we're going to dig into your past exclusively, or B, your trauma is affecting your day-to-day existence to the point where you're having a lot of fun trouble functioning day to day. So we're going to work on that first and what we're going to get you to a certain level where you can like function day to day. And then we're going to kind of dive deeper into your trauma. I, at this point, I'm very new in my career, have really focused on that school of Mm -hmm. thought to start. The worry for a lot of therapists like is that it removes a lot of, it's so, it's very process oriented. Like you do it a very specific way Mm -hmm. Uh, you're mm-hmm. trained a very specific way, like Laura had described, and you're kind of removing that patient-client portion out of it at that point because you're focused more on process mm-hmm. as a therapist. Um, yeah. And you definitely, in order to do this kind of treatment, you need very specific training. Like, I could not just say, oh, you have trauma? Like, we're going to do mm-hmm. this today together. Like, that would be ethically super irresponsible of me to do um but yeah i I think like it's been very effective with uh traumatic persons that suffer from trauma so yeah um i definitely look like i would definitely encourage others to look if they're interested to explore um emdr that's something that i have considered and might get to at a 
at a point, what I've been doing recently is a lot of talk therapy and kind of what you were talking about, about li- mm-hmm. like stabilizing and then we dip our toes in and then stabilizing and then we dip our toes in mm-hmm. a little more. And I've been doing something called a trauma mm-hmm. egg um, technique, but it's like, it's a giant piece of paper and it she drew an actual egg shape on it and we wrote like a list of roles I've played and a list of people and like we just it, I worked through a lot of containers that I put around memories and then I started drawing pictures of like things I remember from like when I was a mm-hmm. baby um and at first I was like what am I doing but it really it has really helped me kind of start accessing a lot of memories. And I think starting with things that happened before trauma helped me kind of practice. Like I'm accessing a memory I haven't thought of at all that doesn't really hold emotional weight so that when I get to the ones that, and I really haven't gotten to any hard ones yet. Um, I, I'm and I'm I think I'm getting close to getting ready and honestly this podcast is helping that in a lot of ways um but yeah um but it I just draw a picture and then we talk about it and then I draw a picture and we talk about it and it it has helped me a lot more than I thought it was going to um and yeah. and I'm, I'm still like on the bottom third I think I'm like eight in the timeline of this egg right now so there's still a long way to go but you mm-hmm. know I've sorry I've done a thing with some clients where you take, especially when there's been verbal abuse and psychological abuse, you take a bunch of stones that are probably like palm-sized or fist-sized stones, and you write out the degrading terms on those stones in a permanent marker, put them in a backpack, go to a lake, and one by one you take that, you read off the word, and you huck it as far as you can Hmm. into the lake. Um, and you have to carry that load from, you know, the car to the lake because it's kind of what these feelings do mm-hmm. to you. They weigh you down. It's just an invisible weight that's on your back. And it's a way to, again, externalize the problem and say, like, you are not yeah. this problem. Like, these problems are external from you and they can be yeah. managed. So that's a creative intervention we've done, and I know that it's one we'll do again, where you take the problem, you write it out to externalize it. Kind of like in the Babadook, like that book in the yes. Babadook is all of her problems mm-hmm. externalized. Um, and then you like huck it as far as you can into the middle of the that's lake. That's interesting that, that you yeah, talk about like And I love that yeah. movie, um, which probably will be a future episode down the road. Yeah, we're going to have to cover <laughs> yeah. That's like a mandatory. Oh, yeah. There's... <laughs> There's no, there's no yeah, probably. <laughs> like we we cover the Baba uh, yeah, hey, there's, the yeah, there, there's, there's no probably. There's only Baba. Ba- uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't, no, I love it. it. Makes no sense. Um, yeah. But one of the things I see in Big Little Lies, which I have some thoughts on that we'll talk about later, but um, she, her therapist asked. Nicole Kidman, what would you do if this happened to your friend? And so like imagining it happening to someone else, I think kind of externalizes it and takes it and you're able to see it more clearly because if something like if some of the things that have happened to me, if I saw them happen to somebody else, I would absolutely do something about it. Um, But it's hard to feel that way about yourself because of kind of what Mm -hmm. we were talking about. Like you feel like like a non-person in a lot of ways. So when you talk about it in an external way, one, it kind of takes the emotional charge out because you're thinking about it not in relation to you anymore. 
Um, and it's just kind of, uh, and she always talks about containers that you put around things that like provide like an element of safety, you know, which is kind of like, Laura, you're talking about the seven minutes that you spend, like kind of bringing yourself back up. Like that's a way to mm-hmm. put this in a container so that you're able to move on and not have it, like not have the rock, like constantly weighing you down. Um, Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, are there any other treatment modalities that we would want to talk about? Or, or is that maybe fodder for future episodes more specific to PTSD? Uh, there are a lot of different things, like from CBT to mm-hmm. exposure therapy. Um, I say we save those for okay. future episodes. One, because, you know, we're going they on are. two and a half hours. And two, because I don't have any <laughs> notes in front of me. And I'll just yeah. start, like... I'll probably just get things yeah. completely wrong. Well, we're going to take, but don't worry. Yeah, we got plenty I mean, of trauma yeah, I would and be plenty like, of films yep. to, <laughs> in which to unpack this shit. It's evergreen. <laughs> well, okay, so are there any other mental health issues we see? We're not going to cover this in depth, but I just kind of don't want to let things go by without mentioning them. Um, one of the things that I saw in this movie, there is suicide and there's talk of attempting suicide um, that I think could be mm-hmm. a little bit triggering to people. Um, and Laura, there's something that, that I noticed and I don't know if you want to talk about this or not. <laughs> and if you don't, it's OK. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, we can't we can talk about it. I'm not that bad with it. I don't know if I have like the full blown, but I just I strongly dislike this mm. thing. When I, once I saw it on the internet and realized it had a name, I was like, oh, that, I hate it. <laughs> and so that's uh, tripophobia. Did I say that right? Seems tripophobia, right. which tri- could be tripe or trip. trip Who knows? Tripophobia. It's tripping me up. I know that. Um, <laughs> but that's a fear of closely packed holes. Um, but yeah, so fear of closely packed holes because his suit has like kind of a grid um, like the grid pattern, yeah. the like hexagons yeah. and stuff. To me, it looked like like a beehive or something. Like it had that kind of like structural integrity. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. So when I saw that you put that note, I was like, "But why?" <laughs> and then I get I get now that that's his suit. I could totally yeah. see that, but I, it did not trigger that for me when I saw his suit because. Well, we don't need to get into it. We'll share some, maybe on social media, we'll, uh, we can post some um, behind a, like, you know, on Instagram, we'll put, like, a, a placeholder image and then be, like, swipe if you want to see oh. the holes. <laughs> yeah, swipe for holes. There's this, like, frog that, like, holds its eggs and it's the top of its back or something with all these holes. And it's the most, it's truly horrifying. Like, I, I hate it. Really? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say there's a podcast called Some of All Fear that talks about phobias. And they have an episode on that phobia too so if you're curious about it check that out um yeah are there any other mental health issues we see i mean when you're looking at adrian you see Mm. potential like sociopathology and psychopathology there narcissism being one of them as well narcissistic personality disorder so there's definitely you know there are definitely some other things there that are kind of like underneath the surface Mm -hmm. Um, i think i think and this is just a side note for the future it'd be interesting to unpack the psychology like the abuser psychology like what is the the archetype like the or like the typical you know um behavior patterns and personality disorder things that we see in in somebody like an adrian or or like you know on the spectrum of that from adrian to christian you know there Mm -hmm. there was an excellent article it was on life hacker earlier this week like how to tell when you're dating a narcissist Mm. um and I need that. <laughs> I need to yeah, keep that I would, article I would strongly pinned encourage, on a wall. Yeah, I would strongly encourage 
um, our listeners to kind of look that up. Um, I just don't have it in front of me, but it discussed things like how very early in the relationship, the narcissist will imbue the qualities they see in themselves on their partner Mm. and they'll be very flattering of them. They'll buy them gifts, presents, but then you'll quickly see how everything is about the partner and never about you at that point. Mm -hmm. Like they don't take any time to ask about you. It's always shifts back to them. And then the first thing they notice about you, they don't like rather than accept it as a difference. They pretty much write you off at that point. Mm -hmm. And they might keep you around because, you know, they want someone to flatter or entertain them, but they don't regard, have any regard for your feelings or thoughts at all at that point. It's a really good article. I would strongly recommend it. We can link it either in the show notes or I'll link it on social media because I'm I, I very curious yeah. about that. Yeah. As someone who has dated way too many narcissists and gone, how did this happen again? Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, well, so moving to what other movies we see abusive or toxic relationships in. Um, I mentioned earlier Big Little Lies. That's something it's not I don't I wouldn't call that horror, but um, I I definitely see this. And I will also say, I don't know if I've ever felt as stabbed in the back by a television show as I did in the second season of Big Little Lies. So if you were, and I've got a lot of thoughts on that for another day, but if you want to check that, I would recommend the first season highly. Second season is real hit or miss for me. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me to watch it, but I have not yet. I also see this in I, Tanya, which was actually the movie that triggered a panic attack that got me into therapy. So I kind of oh. hold that movie as kind of, it's got a special place in my heart. And then of course, sleep. It's a good, it is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really like that movie a lot. I do so, too. Yeah. Um, and then sleeping with the enemy, which we, I know we already mentioned too. This has a lot of the same DNA as that movie, which is so mm-hmm. great. It's such a good movie. I could stand for a revisit of that one. There's, I love, mm. I love that era of film I for too. just like they're just being really gratifying and like probably oversimplified, but like just a very safe space for movies, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I would say like the first two stepfather movies. Mm. Oh yeah, um, with Terry O'Quinn, which are like those early nine, like eighty, early early ninety kind of slasher slash psychological thrillers. Who am I? Here? Terry O'Quinn is. Yeah, and I, it's what's fascinating watching, especially the first Stepfather, I think you saw so much of what John Locke was in Lost uh-huh. developed through that performance in the first Stepfather in particular. Um, so I really enjoy I mean, I watch Terry O'Quinn pretty much do anything. So um, I would say that might be an example of some uh, abusive relationships mm-hmm. in film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the there were two movies that this movie made me think of specifically, and both of them have abusive relationships in them. But um, Unsane, which is this the Soderbergh yes. movie that he shot on iPhone a oh, few wow. years ago, mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it's a it's a you know it's um it's a little bit of a silly movie, but it's a it's a very much like what if like your stalker ex like really put you in an insane asylum? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and like, that's basically the whole premise. And then he's like working in the insane. Asylum. It's a whole thing. Um, and then Candyman is the other one I, that I thought of mainly because there's the whole element to that story where she ends up not being believed mm-hmm. and her, mm-hmm. her like dipshit husband, um, character, you know, like that, that's another, that would be a fun movie to look at from the perspective of abusive relationships because, um, her marriage in that movie it's not again it's not like classically abusive but it's super toxic and he's such a dick yeah he's just such a 
classic dipshit of of cinema. Um, That's interesting because I saw you put that on the list, and I was like, how? I, I didn't get it until we started talking about but, it. I was like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then she, I mean, like, not spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Candyman from the mid nineties, go watch um, it right but now. But she if gets instant. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I could talk a lot about that you movie, do. and I'm so, mm. I'm so, I'm dying, dying to see the remake. Um, like truly, it is like. That's one the, of the one only things for me. I was looking forward to. Yeah, I was like looking forward to it so much, and then obviously it got delayed because of everything. But mm-hmm. it's it's killing me. Um, but she ends up institutionalized because you know people don't believe her because she's set up to look like she did a murder mm-hmm. basically, and so you know it gets it gets a little more twisty. But there's definitely some. I was getting some Candyman vibes while watching this. Yeah, I'm gonna give like two more examples. One of them I would say would be Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because like. Before the madness even goes down, Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance, there's so much contempt for both Wendy oh, and his son. Mm-hmm. So I mean, much contempt. The last time I saw it, it had been a while since I watched it, and I was like laughing at the beginning. Cause it Jack, plays Jack, as a comedy. Right. Well, because Jack Nicholson, I mean, he's just his line delivery, but the way that he's like looking at them in the car and he's like, Ugh, and it's like, this guy already yeah. hates his family. Right. Don't send him yeah. up to this place. I, like, I, I, the last time I saw The Shining with the crowd, it definitely played with a, it's a comedy with the crowd, like Nicholson's, because it, it plays every Father's Day at the Brattle Theater in Boston. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and like Psycho play, Psycho plays mm, every Mother's, Mother's Day. Day. Yeah, that's um, the other example I'll give, there's a documentary that came, I want to say 2012. It's called My Amityville Horror. Mm. Um, it is, and I forget the son that is featured in this, but it talks about all of the abuse he suffered at the hands of George Lutz, mm. who is was the, at the center. The, the, is this the actual Amityville family? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the yeah. actual Amityville family. And he is he is convinced that he saw things in that home. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not convinced that it... But I, again, think that is just his way of processing what mm-hmm. occurred to him. But he talks about all of the physical and emotional abuse that he his family and his mother suffered at the hand of george lutz Mm. and what a monster wow he is that's a documentary i would definitely um seek out and highly recommend it is heartbreaking to watch that well let's uh let's move into our our uplifting moment Um, all right, so what are our grounding and our self-care um, that we're kind of um, experiencing this week or we're using? And we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about self-care before we share our own personal ones because self-care can look like so many different things. And what it really is is something that makes you feel better. And that can be like I ate tater tots tonight because I really like tater tots and that made me feel good in this moment. Or I took a couple of breaths and I know Laura, you and I have been talking about kind of, we don't want this to turn into a way of shaming other people or a way of making you feel like I want to do this thing and I can't, you know? Exactly. And, and, and just like like you said it earlier, like we don't want it to be like another thing on your list that you didn't get to and therefore you feel bad. Cause like, I feel that way about like, I always have on my to-do list, like meditate and I like almost never get to it Mm -hmm. and, and then berate myself for not, you know, not being present enough to meditate, which is exactly counterintuitive to the point of why one would meditate. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that there's probably a lot of people out there right now, not probably, there are a lot of people out there right now who 
who really don't have the option for self-care because Mm -hmm. of you know, the pandemic is causing a lot of financial concerns for a lot of people. And even beyond that, there's just a lot of people in a lot of really difficult situations right now, especially. Um, So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. But, you know, and so I've tried to sometimes reframe these things in my head as like, just what little thing can I do today and say that I took that moment and was either reflected on something and felt grateful for it or took five minutes to, to do some deep breathing. You know, if, in the, if it's the smallest little thing, mm-hmm. as long, it's about framing it in your head as taking a, a little win for yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of just how I've been thinking about it. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to say, because we definitely don't want this to turn into it, it, self-care does not have to be getting a massage or going to a spa or like doing mm-hmm. 45 minutes of yoga because that's just not possible for everyone and might not be what everyone needs. You know, it doesn't have to be a bubble bath. So when I was in grad school, we had our inter- internship classes and it's basically it was the us getting together once a week to review our cases with one another and like feed one, get feedback from your mm-hmm. peers. And I remember the first week of the third internship class I had, there was this one of my classes, she's a little bit of an older woman, and she was a little bit flighty. And I, I can't think of a better word to use, but she went on a 45-minute soliloquy mm. where she just was wondering if what she was doing was actually self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like like everybody was stunned, mm. and it was the first class of the semester, and we were all like... I remember at one point I got up, went to the bathroom, walked, got a snack, walked around the building, came back, and she was still going wow. on. Oh, no. And, I re- oh, and no. I'm like, whoa. So I remember, like, she paused, and I'm like, well, I ask a quick question? She's like, yeah. I'm like, do you feel better after you, what you – the thing you're doing, do you feel better after? She's like, yeah. I'm like, cool. It's self-care. Can we – someone else, like, can anybody else yeah. go now? Mm-hmm. So – That's really I funny. <laughs> yeah. I think it's – yeah, it's just about, like, you know, acknowledging or even, like, figuring out what makes you feel better. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, right. sometimes I think something is making me feel better, and then I'm like, wait, it is not mm-hmm. incorrect. This whole time I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and those things change. Sometimes they work for you, and sometimes, like, d- depending on the seasons of your life, they don't work anymore, you know? Or you don't need exactly. them in the same way you did. So what's some of the self-care and um, maybe any kind of grounding or coping techniques that we're using right now? Laura, do you have anything in particular? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, I mean, I'll say like, you know, that this, uh, that whole rant I just went on was largely uh, a way of saying that I've been, you know, struggling with this kind of stuff. I guess I've been eating some ice cream here and there mm-hmm. and um, just remembering to exercise when I can because it really does boost my mood uh, immensely. Mm-hmm. And I don't always get there, but when I do, I, I never regret it. Yeah. Nice. Um, Mike, do you have anything? So... My wife and I, a week ago, we needed a new show to kind of watch and we want to turn our brains mm-hmm. off because, like, yes. she has been watching a lot of, like, um, searching for Bigfoot. And <laughs> I love Bigfoot well, stuff, I watched that but, I hate, but I hate I hate that show. So we like, let's find something we can watch together. So we, like, on a whim, just started watching Hoarders, thinking that it would be, like, really relaxing. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, that's definitely not the reaction that we're having. Oh, it's a stressful, it's an upsetting show. show. I, it is like, 
But it is also like super nice to just lie in bed with my wife and like Aww. watch like two or three episodes of this show and sit there and start diagnosing people and talking like with her because she's just a licensed psychologist. Nice. Um, who so our kid is going to I was going to so make a joke up. about that, but yeah. I didn't feel like it was um, my place. <laughs> so, um, so, oh. um, but like we'll sit there, we'll watch a couple episodes, and it's really nice. And I think she has a crush on Matt, one of the clean hoarder mm. dudes there. So I'll make like a joke, like the last episode is like we find out Matt's been a hoarder <laughs> all along, and all of the stuff that's been removed ends up at his house, and like. The last show is they have to clean his, but like we kind of, I don't want to say we hate watch the show because mm. we don't, but we cringe mm. watch it. Oh yeah. But it's, it's nice to have that. Yeah. It's super nice to have that like hour or two to just like, let's just chill together and turn off, you know, engage different parts of our brains and like, so that's been one thing I've been doing in that and, um, really like we all got bikes and like we've been except for the past week where it's been a hundred degrees mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. like we've been like bike riding more and more and i find that like a lot of fun oh yeah i love riding my bike so, um yeah. great i'm always great afraid that time. i'm gonna fall over and get run over by a car <laughs> i have oh well that's I, I, bikes. <laughs> I was gonna say I, I i love it except for you know having to bike in the city so if i can just get to the trail um, and there's not a lot of people on it now because now I'm also paranoid about them breathing on me, mm. which is just a fun, fun little bonus to my anxiety. But I actually, but like the actual action of riding a bike. Anyway, this is now the segment of the show where I talk about all these things that are supposed to be relaxing and how they uh, make my anxiety worse. But that's just called living with anxiety. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've been doing is trying to really, um, walk a lot and I, um, like throughout the day too, like when I, when I start to feel myself getting anxious, I just kind of go and just walk a little bit outside. Um, and like, I'm at home with my kids working during the day and then Corey will get home for lunch and I'll just kind of take a walk outside real quick while I can to kind of try to like get it before it starts to become like a big need and I can't meet it because I'm the only adult here. Um, but that has been super helpful for me just to get out and to move and to kind of, it allows me to shut my brain off. Um, and a coping or a grounding thing that I noticed recently, um, was, and it's actually because of this podcast is I've noticed that naming things has been super helpful for me. Like I talked in the first episode about my hand clenching thing and I was describing it. And then I noticed I didn't feel the need to do it as much. Like I would say, oh yeah, that's the hand clenching thing. And I think once I have like locked into words that describe a thing, it's like it takes the power away and it's kind of like the externalizing we were talking about. Um, Exactly. Yeah. And so, and I think that was the writing for me. Like if I, I think I'm just a very verbal person and my love language is like words, like words. Um, And so if I can put a label on something, it's like it takes the power away. And I think this podcast is kind of helping me just kind of get that stuff out and reframing it in a way that like logically makes sense to my brain. It's like moving it, moving it from the feeling part of my brain to like the logical like language center, you know? Absolutely. And I I do think that there is, God, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, trying to go back to like my college brain which was definitely a superior version of my brain because I I remember something from the days uh uh, that I in some class where that there is a a connection between like language and like 
it just it puts your brain into a different place where like you won't feel as sad because you're like playing word games mm-hmm. and engaging with like the language part of your brain. I, this is sound. I sound so unscientific <laughs> right now, and it's it's like the language part of your words. But basically, there is there there is something to that, and mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of reasons we do ritual as as humans. You know, a lot of these things to me sound like ritual. It's like putting things on stones or you know, uh, externalizing things into words or writing them on a piece of paper. And those are, I think there's such power to ritual Mm -hmm. and I love ritual. And I think that a lot of it gets lost or too tied into religion or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think these things can be super, super powerful and are like deeply embedded in the human psyche. So yeah, I agree. Yay. (laughs) Um, well guys, um, that is going to end our month on toxic and abusive relationships. Although I think as bye Felicia, <laughs> <laughs> what do we want to give? What do we want to give our listeners? For oh, that's work? right. And should we decide on a? Should we decide on a Twitter hashtag? Should horror heels? Yeah, be we the can do that. Twitter yeah, hashtag. Um, uh, yeah, hashtag horror heels. Um, and I will also say we do have a Facebook group that is a private Facebook group and it is moderated. So if there are things we're asking and you want to share things you don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing about on Twitter or any of the other socials. This We hope this is going to be a safe place to talk about some of that stuff. And that is the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group is the name of it. And I'll post some of it to our <laughs> socials. But yeah, I think Horror Heels works. Um, so do we have a question for this week? You know, maybe just I'd be I'd be curious to see, like, you know, how, how people feel about these two movies, how they feel about um, the, you know, what we had to say about about this topic uh-huh. if they have anything they want to share yeah or something that they feel like they want to add to what we had to say mm-hmm. um i just be very curious to hear people's perspectives on this i want i would love for this to be a dialogue me too yeah and what other movies or shows do you see this into and you know always what what self-care are you using what is your understanding of self-care what has worked um, for you because that might give somebody an idea of something that they can do when they're feeling like they can't find anything to make themselves feel yeah. better. Yeah. Let's say what, what are some, you know, uh, minute or less, like some quick hit self-care things that you're doing, something you can do with very minimal time and resources. I think I would love to hear I would too. thrift, thrift, thrifty self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like the Mrs. Cheap version of, uh, self-care. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So you can share that either in the psychoanalysis podcast support group that we just talked about, or, um, we are at psycho a pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, and I will try to make sure I'm posting stuff to get this conversation started. But that's where you can find us and answer these questions. Um, because th- this is this has been a heavy month. I think we've talked about a lot of really important things. But um, it, it takes some unpacking. And I think, like we were talking about, if you can and do feel comfortable sharing your story, it does help other people. Um, and if you don't, that's okay, too. You know, we don't want to force anybody to engage with us if they just want to listen. That's okay, too. Um, but next month, we are, I think we're. it's going to be a little bit lighter. Um, we're going to be talking about paranoia. And the movie that we're going to start out with is Sinister. And I am so excited because I love Yay. this movie. <laughs> I, I have to say, I love how, like, we're going to get a little bit lighter. The next month, we have a movie oh, with a bunch yeah, of Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Only in, in our horror-poisoned brains. I, know. I mean, to me... And there's like a total tonal difference. And I'm like, yeah, that's a light movie. But I remember like watching it with someone like last year and they were like, that was really disturbing. And I'm like, right. was it though? Yes. And like, <laughs> yeah. Dude, 
The lawnmower scene. I, I, the those lawnmower videos. Scene. Oh, well, let's save it. But I those I love those home movies. Yes. They're oh, they give me the the willies I, in a good way. <laughs> oh. uh, so yeah, lots to talk about in that. So watch Paranoia. Uh, <laughs> watch Sinister. Um, I'm sure there's a movie out there called Paranoia. There probably that, that is. Probably fits the bill. Yeah, <laughs> you can watch that too if you want. But we are going to be spoiling it. So make sure if you want to, you watch it before you listen. Um, and that's going to be out in two weeks. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. And Instagram on Psycho A Pod. And we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can check out other shows on that network The Losers Club, Halloweenies, The Horror Virgin, This Must Be the Gig, Kyle Meredith with The Assembly, The Opus, Ghost Echoes, and The Fifth Dimension. And uh, Mike, where can we find you outside of psychoanalysis? So um, I'm also the host of a show called The Pod and the Pendulum. I co-host that with Jerry Smith, who's a writer for Scream Magazine, Dread Central, and another uh, uh, Hog Creek Horror. Um, we are show very – if you are finding us through the Consequence Podcast Network, we're very similar to Halloweenies in that we cover franchises and we do like one movie an episode, although – we're doing two episodes on the first <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street because that is my favorite franchise and it's my show and I can There's do a lot that of I, I support want. it. Yeah, um, I support it. So in, similar to here, we do a lot of research into the behind the scenes, we uh, the context of where that film is, any sort of like – so with Elm Street, I'll talk about Nightmare Disorder and Lucid Dream Ooh. Therapy. Um, on the on the second uh, episode of that, we'll talk a lot about like sociological implications, cultural implications of the film. Um, I I like I you know I know people are like oh maybe blah, 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 you know it's not that good maybe like no fuck <laughs> it we're like it's it is good. I agree. like our show is like I, I really love the work we're doing on the pod of the pendulum and I we have a different guest every week for our first Elm Street episode we had Tommy Hudson who was one of the producers and writers for a lot of the horror documentaries that we love, like um, Never mm. Sleep Again, Crystal Lake Memories, Inside Scream. Um, his book, Never Sleep Again, it's like it's 350 pages. It's the definitive book on the Elm Street series. On just the yeah. first oh, movie, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's like wow. a must-read. Um, so that is mostly where you'll find me. You'll find me at Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. Uh, you'll also find Pod of the Pendulum at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Um, well, Laura, where can people find you outside of psychoanalysis? Uh, wandering these streets, <laughs> just in my Antifa super soldier onesie. <laughs> oh, oh nice. no, you can't find that. I mostly hide inside my apartment. Uh, but I am at Underalls on Twitter, U N D E R A L L S. And on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, except if it was real sad. Oh. And uh, on both of those platforms, I talk shit. Nice. Yeah, delightfully. <laughs> you also post Excellent. a lot of really great, like, um, like informative things and, like, supportive oh, things. Oh, thank like, you. I, you're a good follow on Instagram. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, yeah. that it's not, yeah. I just, I feel like I use that story function just to share because it makes me feel, more, again, like, more connected to people mm-hmm. and stuff. And I just like, and I like 
you know, seeing who's looking at it and knowing that, you know, somebody was forced to gaze upon something that I posted. And yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's just some little ways we feel more connected right now is good. Right. Usually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you also are on Halloweenies and the Losers Club also on Consequence oh, yeah. Podcast Network. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I forgot about that. I, I feel so this is like how much I minimize myself in my own head. I'm like, yeah, no, I no, it's true. I've been on a guest on both Halloweenies and Losers Club. I've been recording some Patreon only episodes for Losers Club lately. So give them money nice. and you can hear me talk. Yeah, you talked about The Thing, didn't you? Yeah, we talked about The Thing and Hannibal, the oh, show, which nice. I was like, just, we, it was a short, it was a short episode, but uh, I could talk about Hannibal for hours <laughs> and Mads Mikkelsen oh. for even more hours. Yeah. So. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram um, at Jen Ferratu with two N's. You can find me um, co-hosting the Horror Virgin podcast and occasionally on the Losers Club as well. Um, and yeah, that's going to be it for us, guys. I think this was a really good conversation. Um, I It wasn't an easy one, but I'm glad we did it and that we talked about some things that I wish we talked more about in our society and weren't. Uh, it wasn't as taboo to talk openly yeah, about, and, you know. And thank you for sharing, Jen. I mean, I think Thanks. it's really, I think it's great. Thank I you. just think, I think you're great. I think this is yeah. great. Oh, thank you. I am so proud to be on a show with you two women <laughs> that are like absolutely unafraid to like share your experiences. <laughs> thank you, Mike. <laughs> um, it really thinks we're doing important stuff here. You know, I really am. Like, I'm really Excited. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I see what you did. Yeah. That would be S I K E D. Psyched. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't spell either of those words. So, um, well, guys, it's, we came here to uh, chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves, right? And we're all out of bubble yeah, gum. Yeah, and we're, you know what? We're, we're all, all out of bubble, bubble gum. gum. <laughs> oh, we forgot to say our names. I'm. T- <laughs> One day, I know. We'll One day we can just off. do it in post. All right. It, we'll fix it in post, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Laura. I'm Jen. <laughs> I'm still Mike. <laughs> Bye, guys. Still Mike. Bye. <laughs>